is the Gator Nation Football Podcast with your hosts, Alan Williams and James DeVirginia. This place is an insane asylum in the swamp! Oh my! Now we know we're just a bunch of average stiffs. It is time for another edition of the Gator Nation Football Podcast. I am your host, James DiVirgilio, alongside the one, the only, Alan Williams. We have got a great bye week episode for you. We're going to break down the South Carolina game. We're going to play a little hold, extend, fire our current assistant coaches, and a whole host of other great things. But first, I would be remiss if I did not discuss the major gaffe that literally so many of you brought to our attention last week, which I really appreciate. It means that everyone is listening. But both Alan and myself, and let's be real, we have to blame Alan here. He's the personnel guy. He's Indeed. the main guy. Jeff Collins, obviously not the coach of Temple. That's Rod Carey. But in our brilliance, our accidental and totally incorrect brilliance, we foreshadowed Jeff Collins getting a win this past weekend at Georgia Tech over Miami. So I want to say... That we were so wrong, we were right. But really, thank you for keeping us honest. We apologize for the mistake. We try our best not to make any mistakes, but we we are human. And Alan, what would you like to say to apologize to the people since you didn't catch me on this mistake? I know, that you incepted me into talking about it. What's funny, as soon as someone said something, I was like, oh yeah, I, I know that information. Just in the middle of everything, just kept rolling. Uh, yeah, apologies to Rod Carey and his whole family. No slights and... T- <laughs> Intentional or otherwise, were directed at you. Jeff Collins doing a great job. Just kidding. Maybe doing an okay job at Georgia Tech. The future might be brighter. That was that was a decent win for them, even against a kind of bad Miami team. Yeah, I guess that win changes the trajectory. But either way, our apologies. However, keep the the corrections coming. That's what we like to see, right? Sure. We hold ourselves to that. Our job of this podcast is to be analytical. And if you can't take feedback when you're wrong, then you're not very analytical. All right, as always, if you like the content, if you love the content, hop on Facebook, drop us a like, become a patron on Patreon, follow us on Twitter, give us a dono. We have a large and wide variety of donos you can give us now. Small, medium, large, XL, hundo bomb. I'm thinking of naming these after Gator players, by the way. So look out. You could have like the Emmett, maybe the Trask. I don't know. And I got the idea this week from one Tyler Rummery who calls himself the first and original fan of the podcast. We get a lot of good info from Tyler. If you've been a lifelong listener of the pod, which is about five years now, you if know, you're five years old, you know Tyler, listener. right? So Tyler moved up from a small dono to what he's calling the Trask dono or the King Trask dono in his words. We're going to call it the Trask dono at $11. And I kind of love the idea. So look out for new naming things. But we also had an XL dono from Mark Rubenstein, which is the college roommate of one Brian Levine. Brian Levine gave us a hundo bomb. So those two, you guys are having a big week this week. Thank you big very week. much. We, we appreciate that. You guys that. should get together and celebrate together. Yeah, that's pretty amazing. So they were they were Gators uh, you know, back in the day, and then Gators still through and through listening all over the country. We had uh, Craig Scarado coming to the large dono. Micah Pounders, longtime supporter, moving from medium to large upgrade. And then Dylan Fay, who we're going to read a note from Dylan Fay as a large dono that's I've gotten a lot of great notes. You've gotten a lot of great notes, Alan, throughout the years of doing this podcast. But this one may be the best one I've heard. And we'll, we'll read this one out loud here in a second. Medium donos from small to medium is Scott Stoll. Thank you so much. Appreciate conversing with you as well. Phil Coover, the medium dono. 
Alfred Garcia, and then Chris Golz comes in at the small dono. And of course, still on the throne, undisputed champion of the Gator Nation world, Alexander Leventhal. There have been challengers throughout the years, but no one has bumped him off. If you're thinking of challenging him, do so. We'll give you a throne mention, but know that you best come with all of your guns blazing. Al, why don't you read this note from Dylan? And, and this is the spirit of this note. We've gotten to hear so many of your stories, which is tremendously encouraging to Alan and I. Peeling back the curtain for a second, once upon a time, I was almost in favor of ending the podcast. In fact, if you've been listening for five years, we actually charged for this podcast for a little bit, not to make money, but I wanted to test to see if people really cared about it. Not because we needed our egos boosted, but because both of us have full-time jobs. And if we're going to set aside you know, 10 to 12 hours each week to do this, I wanted to make sure it mattered in people's lives. I underestimated how cool this would have been and how, how much this matters in a really cool way. And so we've gotten stories about husbands and wives and fathers and sons and brothers and sisters and, and you know anything you can imagine where it brings people together. And for Alan and I, we're both big community people. We're big believers in community and relationships. That's what drives our own lives. So hearing that our show impacts your own personal lives is the coolest. And that's why we're going to read this note from Dylan out today. All right, here we go. Just wanted to let you know I up to a large dono because of how much this show, how much fun this show is for me. My dad was a sports writer for 30 years and growing up, I rebelled against that and hated all sports. Got turned into a diehard Gator fan my junior year when my buddies forced me to go to the 2012 LSU game and I fell in love with the energy and excitement of the swamp. I've never been able to talk sports with my dad before because I just don't have the knowledge to have a real discussion. By listening to the podcast to learn enough about how football works to be able to discuss it in depth with him using all the lingo and concepts I never understood before. That means a lot to me. So thanks for the great explanation you guys do of football concepts without making the podcast sound like a lecture. And for what it's worth, the Auburn game was the first Gator game my dad watched this year. And it took him about three minutes of watching Trask before he texted me, why the heck was Felipe ever your starting quarterback? This kid is elite. So you aren't alone in needing a small sample size to love Trask. Best, Dylan. Uh, thanks so much, Dylan. That was really encouraging for us. We love to receive that. I think that's great. I mean, if I could have put our goal into a sentence there that explaining the football concepts and talking about hello high level without it being a lecture. So if that's how it comes across to you, hope it comes across like that to everybody else. Thanks so much for taking a minute and writing that. Yeah. And if you like podcast history, history of the things you're listening to, we said this one's five years old and we sat down to do our first show. We said, you know, if a hundred people ever listened to this, it'd be awesome. But we were uncompromising and that we were going to try to do just that. We were sick of seeing the basic discussion points around football, and we thought maybe it was too complicated or it was too abstract over the, the airwaves to talk about a cover one or a cover two or scheme or game theory, but we tried it. We said, let's do it. We tried it, and I think to this day, whenever we get notices that that's sort of the main reason people like the pod, it warms our hearts because that's exactly why we did it, and I guess we took a risk, you could say, but... Either way, really cool. Thanks so much for the feedback. Thanks for all of you sharing your stories. Uh, it, it does mean a lot to us. It actually motivates me in particular to come in on a Monday and do the pod. It's fun to do it, but it's a lot more fun knowing this is something that's improving your football knowledge because that's near and dear to both Alan and I's hearts. Is like understanding the game. Both of us think it's just such a great game. And the more you learn about it, I think the better the game even becomes. All right, a last housekeeping note. We got a few messages throughout the past couple of months, but one in particular that prompted us to ask this question. Would you guys like podcast merchandise? 
And we keep it simple. Maybe a t-shirt here and there. Sticker or something like that. Mug, sticker. I don't know. Whatever you guys really said, hey, it'd be really cool if I had this Gator Nation football podcast thing. If that's interesting to you or you think it's a good idea or you think it's a terrible idea, hop on to Patreon. Anyone can do this, even if you're not a patron. And you can comment. We make our posts public so you can see them. Comment and let us know. Yes, I love some merch. That'd be so cool. And if so, what? Because we don't want to make a whole store of 500 different things, right? If we did something, it would be like one item. But if that seems cool to you and you like that idea, let us know. Give us some feedback and we'll explore doing it. Yeah. If you have a crazy design you want to throw out there, send that our our way as well. Yeah. Good point. If you're a graphic designer and you think of a cool logo, we're looking for that as well. Okay, James. Let's go ahead and talk about this big win over South Carolina. Before the game, you know, post LSU, Dan Mullen was talking about you know, next week is the most important game or it's one of the biggest games of the season. Now, before the season started, you have not said that. But turning the corner where we're at in the season, the way Dan was looking at it, it was a very big game. So let me ask you to rate this win. Meh, it's kind of whatever. Solid or excellent? This was an excellent win. And for the reasons you mentioned. In a nutshell, Alan, I was the most nervous leading into this game because of the weather and also because of the effect it would have had had we lost. The LSU game, as you all heard me air my frustrations last week, was frustration about a game that did not actually affect the course of our season, but the frustrations were that the the decisions being made could affect our future. This game is one where if you lose the game, you're venting frustrations, but you're also really in trouble with regards to your season. So this one felt really important to win. The weather was a major curveball that only really went against us compared to South Carolina. Really big detriment for us to have that kind of weather. This was an excellent win on the road against a game opponent that I think, as you listen to this podcast, had a really great defensive scheme. They were well prepared to play us. This is a very, very, very good win. I feel very happy with it, despite what are some obvious shortcomings we're going to talk about. These are the games you have to win if you want your team to win something, and we did it. Agreed, 100%. I mean, you don't have to look much further than Wisconsin biffing it against Illinois. This is some of the magic or chaos of college football. Any team is susceptible to this. Even the best teams have hiccups. Or you go on the road, bad weather, noon kick, you're missing some of your key players. That's a game a lot of teams drop. And not that we're above that or we proved, oh, we just come out and smash anybody. But I love the way the team responded. We talked about how will they show up mentally and emotionally. We felt confident they would handle it, you know, at least decently well. And I love the way they played. I love the way they responded to kind of the slowness and difficulty of the weather to really pour it on the fourth quarter that a lot of guys stepped up and made big plays. You didn't see them getting down even when it was beginning of the third quarter, kind of rough. And yeah, to see this team play well, when you, I'm sure that they're looking ahead to Georgia, right? Everything's been building towards that game. So love the way they played. I loved, um, especially the way Trask responded. We're going to get to him in a, a little bit as well. But nice job. This was somewhere between a solid and excellent win. Certainly could have just been a loss on the schedule because of where it fell emotionally, physically, mentally. So great job by Dan, by the coaching staff, by the players of being ready for this game. 
Yeah, something that we said Dan Mullen does very well leading into the week last week is he consistently prepares his team to play. You don't have a lot of energy letdowns. He was really disappointed last year with how we played against Missouri, uh, talking about that energy letdown. And that has not happened this year. It did not happen in this game. And do not sleep on that if you're a college football fan. Of course, our job on this show is to continually analyze things as we're looking for peak output. And it's important to remember that. Some people will say, well, why aren't you praising the job these guys have done? We could consistently do that. We're assuming that you already know that. We're assuming you already know Dan has done a great job. Dan's record versus the other coaches that have been hired is great. All those things are true. We're looking at it with one lens. Can we win a title? And these are things that you have to have. Put this in the checkbox for what it takes to win a title. Is a coach that doesn't have his team have letdowns in crucial games like this? Check that box for Dan. It's one of the things he does really well. And don't sleep on that either. That's not a simple thing to do with college kids, with injuries, with adversity, uh, with a backup quarterback, although Trask is much better than Frank's. There's a lot of things here that Dan gets in his column. Let's not forget that. But remember that when we're looking at, okay, what else do we need in the column? Now, Allen, in this game, it was, it was an emotional game. It was an interesting game. When we were losing 2017, heading into the fourth quarter, what was your feeling at that point in time? I just wanted to win. I didn't care if it was ugly or fluky, whether it was by you know, a pick six at the last moment or whatever it took to win. I wanted to win. And you know, it didn't take something as fluky as that. The team played exceptionally well in the fourth quarter, especially offensively. So those, that's what I mean. When you're seeing this game and how it's playing out, what's leading into it, what's coming after it, you'll just take a win. Now, of course, we're going to get in all things we improve, like you said. And I think this is important to note. Another year in the program with Dan Mullen at the helm, we didn't respond well last time. The team responded much better. So that's another year of instilling your culture, of player development, of strength and conditioning, all those things that you hope build on one another, and you can get a result like you got today. I don't know if this team last year wins this game. Maybe, maybe not on the road in that kind of weather. So I was feeling pretty nervous, but also not freaking out. I think when you're, when you're playing a, a team that's way worse than you and you're like, man, we just look bad. Even if we won, it wouldn't be exciting. I was excited if we got a win at all. And the game felt different. This was a, a, a good football game in really bad conditions. In previous years, when you're losing, it's like, it's a disaster. You can't move the ball or things aren't going right. While we were struggling at times, it, it never felt horrific. It felt explainable. Right. It was understandable. And, and I think your 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 question and answer session is it has to be encapsulated in the weather of this game. When you get that kind of weather, the game regresses and it becomes just win the game. It's no longer the same matchups we had talked about on Monday of that week. Everything is different now. You are just trying to get a win in a monsoon mud bowl. If you watched on Sunday at all the Redskins versus the 49ers, you get the example of this. The 49ers are a much better team than the Redskins. It was 9-0 and it was a close game the whole time because they were playing on a slip and slide. It was crazy. So you have to just win. And I thought that a lot of times comes down to poise, execution, not panicking. And we did those things. What I thought was really great. Okay, Alan. So Trask comes in, lighting the world on fire really struggles out of the gate. I'm getting a lot of text messages. What's going on? Were you impressed with his performance given the wet ball conditions? And we're going to talk a lot about how much that may have affected him. More impressed with him after this game 
less impressed with him. More impressed. This is another data point, right? He hadn't played in this type of environment. You were talking about LSU going on the road, big environment. You know, you keep kind of stair-stepping up with him. This is another test that he passed. The announcers were on him early, which is crazy. You know, he intentionally overthrows the ball not to get a pick because the guy jumped the route. He throws the ball to nowhere because either he called the wrong play or the receivers ran the wrong route on that screen early on. Grimes drops a pass. And he's obviously a little worried about making a critical mistake, squeezing the ball. Now, you and I both played a lot of quarterback in our life. Wet ball is a whole other thing. Not everybody throws a wet ball well. You know, whether it's your hand size or the way the ball spins off your fingertips. Some guys are great at it, some guys are not. I don't I wouldn't say Trask is a great wet ball thrower, but he also was trying to manage that early and not squeeze one too hard. You squeeze it too hard, that ball could slip out and go anywhere. I think that's a little bit what happened on the interception, plus some other things going on. So I was fine with him being cautious early. It, it, he wasn't as erratic as the announcers were making him out to be. Um, now obviously, he couldn't do everything he wanted to do and make every type of throw he normally does with the same amount of confidence. But he didn't give up. He kept adjusting, kept getting better, and made plays when we needed him to make plays. Like He was a freaking hero in the fourth quarter. Very impressed by him. Yeah, more impressed for me. And, and it comes with facing adversity. You know, Caleb Sturgis, former Gator kicker, NFL kicker, faced a lot of adversity in his own kicking career, right? He says he doesn't really care about evaluating a kicker until he watches them face adversity because it's how they respond to missing some kicks as to whether or not they're a good kicker. And Trask faced a lot of adversity. And there's two things I want to take from his performance. One, he consistently takes coaching. Dan's getting after him pretty hard early in the game about right. some technical aspects. His footwork was not good. Um, he was not seeing the field well. He wasn't releasing the ball like typical. And he he is intently focused on what Dan is saying. Often you see quarterbacks kind of turn their head or walk off to the sideline. He's not. Eye contact, soaking up every single word. This is a highly coachable guy. He sticks in it the whole game and then has a heroic fourth quarter, which we're going to break down. I mean, if you watched it live, you may not really understand just how heroic this quarter was until we kind of give you the specifics on film, but phenomenal job by your quarterback not to panic. And again, I want to drill this home. The day kind of proved this out if you watch the rest of the day in college football. Throwing a football in those conditions was extremely difficult. Kyle Trask had the best day of all the quarterbacks that played on Saturday that were in that kind of conditions. By far the best day, and he was on the road. You can't say enough about that kind of performance. And there's no doubt that that wet ball, Allen, affected not only his ability to throw the throws he wanted, it affected the way he read the field. But all of that flipped in the fourth quarter, which shows you something we've been saying about Trask. He does not make the same mistakes, Allen. He's a quick learner. When he figured out how he wanted to handle the wet ball, how much velocity he could throw on it, what throws he was comfortable making, he then began to read the field again. So I think those are hugely important things for this team. And again, do not sleep on how hard it is to throw a wet ball. It is almost an entirely different game if you lose confidence in your ability to do something you've done your whole life, which is just throw and flick the ball. Everything gets devolved. So I thought that was really incredible by him. I'm even more high on him than I was before. That was not an easy thing to do. And you, you saw that Helensky never figured it out the whole game. He was constantly stuck with throwing balls way offline. And I actually think Kalinsky's an accurate quarterback. I said so coming in, whereas Trask, he figured it out. Yeah, I loved it. So many good things to say about him. And we can kind of go on and on. We'll get back to him in a little bit. 
Let me ask you this, though. You had a lot of hard words for Todd Grant and the defense. I was frustrated with them. I would say you were extremely frustrated last week with the defense. Did that change for you at all this week? No. No, I'm in the same level of frustration. And we're going to unpack as to why. We got a better performance out of the defense, but we didn't get what I think is a performance that we're capable of getting. And I don't think that's due per se to players necessarily. Or if it is, we haven't proven that it's due to players because there's other chances or players we could play to see. And I didn't, yet again, second week in a row, and I didn't love our scheme at times. But there were some things this week he did very, very well that he was unable to do last week. So more of a mixed bag this week. I'm still frustrated. I'm still concerned. I'm seeing a trend here of things that we're not fixing that we don't seem to have solutions for. And I think that could get us because right now we're scoring more than 30 points in almost every game. But our defense is is not rising to the occasion. They're sort of going the other way. And it is concerning. It's concerning. Yes, we get our hopefully our two best passers back, but it's still concerning how I think we're choosing to handle this from a schematic perspective. There are other solutions to the problems these teams are giving us. And I'm not loving the solutions Grantham's employing. Okay, let's jump into the nitty-gritty of this game. Gators win 38-27. I predicted 33-17. You were pretty spot on at 35-20. You know, if you take away that garbage touchdown, we're both right on there. Stats were basically even. I mean, their stats are very much inflated, especially passing-wise by those garbage time drives. We basically held them to almost nothing passing the ball outside that flea flicker, which... You know, huge monster receiver. CJ actually has pretty decent coverage. You're going to lose those 50-50 balls against a giant occasionally here and there. So when you're looking at the stats, they're a little deceiving. And then the big story of this game, probably the thing that most people were talking about afterward on Twitter and the national media's penalties. Um, I think from a Gator fan perspective, they may be evened out a little bit. I don't think the officiating crew did a great job Either way, obviously the South Carolina fans, very upset. Live, afterward, people were talking a lot about that offensive pass interference. James, do you think the penalties were a story of this game? They are not the story of this game because what you said. If they were the story of this game, they would have had to have been more one-sided. They are a story because the officiating was poor on both sides. Very, very poor. Uh, and, And does it equal out? That's always an interesting question. It's going to feel like it equaled out to Gator fans because truthfully, we had more chances than they did in the fourth quarter. And so therefore, we had more high leverage plays and we got a few calls on some high leverage plays. They more or less really didn't. And that's not the official's fault they didn't, right? They weren't gifting us 100 yards at a time. We were putting ourselves in those situations, but the officials did a very poor job. I do think it equaled out. When you watch on film, there's a lot of calls that they could have called on South Carolina's DBs almost the entire game for holding or pass interference, and they called very few of them. We did get three first downs by penalty. They got none. But all in all, if I were them, I would be frustrated. There were some crucial plays that went against them, but maybe not as bad, I feel like, Alan, as the national media wanted to portray it. The touchdown pass to Pitts is first down. The interception right. is absolutely a face mask on Van Jefferson. That's not even a penalty. It doesn't even matter. And that's the one that relates to the fans off, but that's, that's a penalty. That's not a pick. That's never an interception at any level of football. You can't rip a guy's helmet off and then expect to get an interception. and think that stands. If that interception stands, 
we'd be losing our minds because you see the face mask across as the guy is breaking to his route. And, you know, people want to talk about the false start and then the block slash hold on uh, Tyree Cleveland. I mean, the false start is there. Can't deny that. Did it matter to the outcome of the play? Not at all. And the rules official on TV said he didn't have a problem. I don't know why Cleveland was holding on to the guy's shoulder pad, but it didn't seem like it affected anything. He wasn't like slowing him down any. And I agree that offensive pass interference, that was first down. I mean, maybe we don't score. I mean, I think if you're South Carolina, you're a little upset already because of the pass interference call, which was totally justified. So, and there's a, obviously a big third down early on where the guy tackles Kyle Pitts coming out of a break on a third down and very obvious call and they don't call it. So I don't know. I, unless it's, it's hard to say football never comes down to one play. Now the end of a game, like a saints Rams kind of thing. If you don't call that, it, it just kind of sticks with you. I don't feel like this is anywhere near that. We were the better team. I think statistically they, had played their way into the game and it was close, but I don't feel like this is a game that the refs stole from them. I mean, that offensive pass interference should have been called, but whatever. There's lots of things that could have been called. Yeah, and to be fair to South Carolina, I read a couple of their follow-ups and and none of their beat writers actually mentioned that the officiating was the cause. They mentioned that it was poor, but that what you said was true, that Florida was the better team, that South Carolina had a chance going into the fourth quarter, which is what they wanted and couldn't seal it. I think that's the proper storyline. But certainly, if we're doing a South Carolina podcast, am I talking about those penalties? Yes, I am. Am I talking about other things as well that affected the game? Yes, I am. And I think that's not the reason, like the Saints game you mentioned, Alan. That was the reason that game swung one way to the other. No such thing here. But still, horrific job by the officials. That's, <laughs> yes. that's what really is the take-home point there. All right, let's talk about the Florida offense and our game plan. When you watch us on film... What did you notice meta strategy that we were trying to do? So two interesting things here. One about the podcast, we're going to talk about strategy and tactics, right? Tactics are short-term, strategy are longer-term. On Monday, we recorded the podcast, the weather was not known yet. Then a tropical depression forms. I loved our game plan for dry weather. It was ballsy to stick with it. In this situation, which I think tells us something we already know about Dan Allen, is that he sticks with his game plan. He did it last week with Emery, and I hated it. And this week he did it, and honestly, this would have been a week to use Emery. And we're going to talk more about weird, that, yeah. because it's a, it's not football anymore. It's not football we know. It's a different style of football that maybe Trask can't play. Regardless, you would have prepared Emery. You would have thought to run the ball quite a bit. Our game plan, however, was aggressive and unbalanced in the way we've been calling for In fact, until we took those last few run plays to end the game, we were almost at 60% passing, which is wonderful. I've been begging for this, calling for this. And I'm saying, do what the defense gives you. Well, on film, they dared us to pass the ball. They basically played LSU's game plan, but I think an even better scheme than what LSU used. They were tricky, but they were encouraging us to attempt to pass. And I'm sure that shifted even more because of the weather for them, Alan. And we did it. We did it. We mainly did the right plays against the right defenses, both run and pass for almost the entire game. This is the first time when charting plays that Dan has hit this high of a percentage of what I would say is the correct play versus the defense. Now, not the route combos weren't always what I loved, but essentially we really did a good job of taking what they gave us. The weather made this much harder. If these two game plans 
were in the sunny weather, South Carolina versus us in nice clear day, we might have scored 60 points on them. And I'm not even kidding. And, and I love it because that shows you our potential. The weather, you could argue, maybe we should have had a little more of, a, of some stuff in that game. But you know what? Good for Dan was sticking with Trask the whole time because he was rewarded in the fourth quarter. Right. That was our game plan, really. It was a heavy passing attack, attacking their man-to-man defense, expecting them to stop our run, which they did. So game theory-wise, Dan nailed exactly how South Carolina was going to play us. And there is a but, which we're going to talk about when we get into play calling. But there is still something. I did love that we were willing to continue to try to execute our plan. Now, if you had had some plans for Emory, like, hey, contingency types of plans, this would have been a week to break them out. Obviously, they weren't planning on getting him into the game. If he had been planned to get in the game, he would have been in the game, I think, early and often, just because it's really difficult to throw a wet ball. Now... Maybe there's some weird kind of situational thing where he doesn't think Emory could hold on to a wet ball. So maybe that has some Emory pass plays in there that they don't break out. So who knows on that? But the only play that Emory was in their entire game was when Trask lost his helmet. So I love that they showed a confidence in Trask. Even though he was struggling early, or the offense as a whole was struggling early, again, he wasn't struggling that much, but figuring his way through it, that they let him play through it, that they didn't panic, and we saw the benefit of that in the fourth quarter. So, you know, you mentioned the ratio. I loved it. I love that we threw. It was was such a clown show, Greg McElroy. And I'm not the one who loves to rail on announcers because, you know, these guys, you know, they can't know everything. They're not studying the team in depth as we are, but this is their job. And to have him go, well, I don't know why they aren't running the ball. It's like, have you watched Florida at all this year? Are you just assuming it's the same team that you called last year? That was, that was a clown show by him. And he should be reprimanded by his bosses for that. Cause it just shows he didn't know what he was talking about at all. Well, and he's called five of our games. And again, I know. this isn't going to be like a Greg McElroy bashing, but for a second, we should bash where bashes do because we're an, we're analysts here. He doesn't know what he's talking about. For a guy who played quarterback at Alabama, it's clear that he played before they started using passing theory to help them because it's the most game manager, nonsensical stuff I've seen. And it's also why he retired from the NFL and went into color commentating and not coaching or something else that involves a little bit more of a schematic brain. He's wrong with Almost everything he's talking about when it comes to Florida, just in general, the route running, the play calling, the design. He's even wrong about South Carolina. He kept commenting how it's such a, a run-oriented team. Not this year, it's not. We we chronicled on the very podcast that, in fact, their passing game, and they're pretty balanced, but they're certainly not a one-run-heavy situation. And with Helensky, they were more of a passing style team. So he was frustrating all game long with the things he was saying. Anyway. But regardless, that's our little... If, if you wanted to get your frustration out with Greg... There it is. The good news is, as he said on Twitter, the Gators are 5-0 and when he's broadcasting our games. So, great. Fine. Keep calling there our games. <laughs> Keep getting everything wrong. Whatever. Fine. Yeah. So, anyway, I love the fact that we were willing to throw the ball as much as we needed to, even in bad weather. I think that bodes well for the future. Okay. You've already mentioned a little bit of South Carolina's game plan. Anything else you want to comment on that? Yes. I loved their game plan. I thought it was the best game plan employed against us thus far. So they came out of the game right out of the gate running a a cover two. So they have two high safeties. We talked about a lot, two guys far away from the ball. 
uh, showing man. So they're showing that they're going to each guard the receiver in front of them. And then they would slide right before the snap. They would slide their inside of their nickel. They'd slide them in between the receiver and our offensive line. So we could basically help in the run game. So they were committed to helping in the run game. They wanted the numbers to be equal or plus one in the run game at all times. And they were content to play man-to-man defense across the backside. So it's an aggressive strategy. What was so great about it, Alan, is from the get-go, they mixed in stunts and twists, which we got murdered with last week. So it showed they watched the film. And they really mixed up their underneath coverage, I thought, beautifully. They had lots of different robbers to try to jump our slant route, which is a great route to jump because it's one of Trask's best routes to throw. They were jumping his, his hitches. I thought they really showed why Will Muschamp is respected as one of the best defensive coordinators, although now he's not coordinating it. You know he's overseeing the plan. Very well thought out. Very good plan. Very well communicated by their defense. They didn't blow a lot of coverages. They were very sound. It's not easy to make those rotations as seamlessly as they did. Again, really solid plan by them. I can't say enough about how good this was tactically. Most of the plays we made, we had to make. These were not easy plays in the field. I expect future teams to attempt to copy this where they can. But if you get good weather, your man-to-man defense will break down. And that's what helps them, is when we can't hit some of these deeper man-to-man routes with confidence, this game plan becomes perfect. I think they did factor in the weather. It wound up being, again, what I thought was a really stellar plan for the day. And you see us take advantage of it a couple times, especially getting Jacob Copeland deep. Now, had a beautiful ball where he just beats the guy, gets a great release, and runs down the field. Barely missed another one where he takes kind of a odd angle right at the end. You know, doesn't have a good read on the ball. But they knew that we could win some of these matchups. And also, I think their game plan included being very handsy with our receivers. They think they watched what LSU did and were saying, okay, if we can be physical with these guys and the referees don't call it, it's going to affect them. Something I wonder if our coaching staff is sending these tapes to the FCC officiating office and saying, hey, this is two weeks in a row that you know teams have been very physical with us. Now, I think our guys are capable of winning those battles. But it shows how much respect I think they have for our wide receivers that they're like, we can't get in and out of these breaks with these guys. We're going to have to be physical. And if we get called for it, we get called for it. Yeah, you can't let them run free. And so some things we did right, I thought, looking at like a higher level, Alan, we answered their scores. Yeah. So we didn't allow the momentum of a road game like this and bad weather to get too far away from us. If they scored, we scored. We always kept it within one score. Uh, especially when the game was 17-10, and then we come right back with that excellent Pierce run. I thought we had fantastic execution and high leverage moments. Uh, Josh Judy sent me a great a great email. Both of us actually went a text down last week about what is this high leverage stuff. I've never heard it employed the way you're using it. If you're a baseball person, you understand high leverage. We're using it as a, one of the most important moments in the game. So these situations that can dictate what happens in the game, pressure packed, different. We are phenomenal in them. Most of them occurred in the fourth quarter. One of those was the Pierce play, right? Momentum's going against you. You get that one in the fourth quarter on fourth down. Huge conversion by Trask we'll talk about. I thought we were fantastic there. There's no panic. We stuck with our plan. Trask afterwards said team was never panicked during the fourth quarter. We knew what we were doing. It started to feel like we just needed to execute a little better. Um, I thought not using Emery again, although I think you could have made that correct. It wound up being right not to use him. I think if the weather's not like that, you should never use Emery, as we've talked about. But if there was ever a game to try to run more of the traditional RPO style where you're really just running it, that would have been it. Uh, Question for you, though, Alan, that I want to ask, dealing with the O-line. There's a couple points I want to make here that we did right. 
there's a, there's sort of a, a story that Thomas Goldcamp put out about how, look, the O-line is improving just like last year's O-line improved. Probably not going to be as good, but we're seeing a similar trend. Do you think you saw the same thing with the run blocking improving? I'd say slight, which makes me hopeful that it'll get incrementally better. Again, I don't expect like a flip to see where this team is going to be excellent. Now, the the role Hevesy had last year, he took some guys who are a little more talented, a little more experienced, and got them to play like a cohesive unit. He had more of an immediate dramatic impact. He's already had these guys for a year. You know, again, they're inexperienced, but they're still older for the most part. So I don't think it's going to be a huge difference. And here's what it's funny. You know, we were theorizing about Dan's commitment to the run. One of them could be is that he has beautifully designed run plays. You've criticized his route combos. When you're watching the film and we have a run play, if you can see if this is blocked correctly, there's no holes in this strategy. It's If it's blocked correctly, it's going to be seven, eight yards before the safety gets there. And if he makes the safety miss, he's gone. So there's some great stuff going on design-wise. When we run it, it's not like that would never work. It would work if we could block it 90% of the time. Sometimes defense overloads or guesses right or does something, you know, very well on their end. So if we can get enough improvement, I think you'll see a big jump because the plays are there with a good offensive line. So Dan, Hevesy, whoever else is into that, they do a great job. I think it is improving, but that's just mainly only to say it's not regressing anymore. They've at least stabilized a little. You've seen last week and this week, just a little bit more improvement. Again, not enough that I would go, that's why we won, or that's going to, by the end of the year, we'll be road grading people. That's where I would see it right now. Well, confirmation bias here, but they played the lineup we liked. We've been calling for this under ways to improve each and every week. And 100% of the snaps was Guraj at left guard and Heggie at right guard. There was no Chris Bleich in the lineup. And that was much better, especially against their stunts and twists. We noted on film that Garage is fantastic at picking up stunts and twists. I don't know if that's the primary reason why they chose to play him, but he was really good at it. He's much faster, much quicker. And Heggie makes a massive difference at right guard because we asked him consistently, Alan, to pull he is good at that. across the formation to get blocks. And that freed us up for the most important touchdown run of the game from Pierce. And we did that multiple times. So... We kept noting this was our best lineup. I hope we stick with this. Is it going to be amazing? No. Was it better than the previous lineup? Yes, for sure it's better than what we've seen personnel-wise. You got to stick with this and see where it takes you. But this was improvement. But like you said, small, but difference maker. Again, Heggie's not at right guard and you have Bleich there. That play never happens with Pierce. It doesn't happen. That's the beauty of football. You got to have all the guys. All right, Alan, where are some things we struggled with in this game? So this is, again, probably mostly due to weather. We're stuck in bad field position a lot. Third downs, we're not executing. I don't want to kill anybody on this because I think really, I I would say like 90% of this is weather related. Now, of course, we're not going to play it perfectly and be, you know, eight for eight on third down throughout the game. I don't know. I, as the game went along, I think as Trask got more comfortable where and how and to who he could throw it with confidence, I think we improved. 
the offense I think is capable of playing a really you know pass heavy set, but with the offensive line, with the degree of difficulty that we're trying to do, you know, basically allow asking our receivers to be perfect on every play. If we screw something up, it's a little difficult. We're going to see some, have some bad results because we don't have a superior offensive line to take some of the pressure away from Trask and the receivers. Yeah. I thought that the the weather really affected Trask out of the gate uh, and the weather, meaning the wet ball. It took him a while to settle in. It affected his reading most importantly. And we get down the individual break of Trask. We'll say a little more about that. But that, I think, was the biggest thing with the field position. We were 5 of 14 on third down. Again, tough to convert in in the weather-related scenarios. I thought the two things that were struggled with regardless of the weather. Uh, Nick Buchanan had probably one of his worst games. It wasn't horrible, but a couple of of times he just struggled to be able to contain his block, which led to a a negative play and in one case led to a pick. Um, The route combos... I'm still going to keep harping on this. It did get better in the second half. In fact, one of the major stories of this game on film was in the second half, we started to run a lot of downfield or even short field pick routes, mainly two-man routes where you're running like a, a post and a corner that rub each other. Uh, you obviously saw the, the play-based course I with Hammond where you're running basically like a slant and a, and a wheel behind him, a classic man-beating combination. But there's still too many individual routes being run out there on the field, especially if teams are going to employ man. Again, very happy to see in the second half we had a more consistent dose of those kind of routes. I'd like to see that a lot more. I think teams are going to have to play man against us. It's really dangerous to play zone against Trask. So look for that. All right, play calling wise, Alan, we talked about the route combos. I think that hurt us a lot. In fact, there were not a lot of open people in this game. On film, the least open any of our receivers have ever been was this game. Now, we did not try a lot of vertical routes due to obviously the weather, what was going on. But good job by South Carolina taking away a lot of what we wanted to do. It took us a while to figure that out. The answer on the RPO touchdown to Pierce was just absolutely beautiful. Like you mentioned, the scheme on that play was great. They had one player miss, which was their safety. But that means you blocked everything perfectly. You can't block the safety. It's a free play. That's very rare all season long that we've actually blocked something so well that the free man was the only man to get to us. He took the wrong angle had a bad fill, and it led to a touchdown, which was just great. The fact that Cleveland's blocking all the way down the field is great. And it was key that he was step a step with him for him not to get the call. But again, don't sleep on the fact that he took a lot of pride in carrying that block all the way down the field. That's a very Urban Meyer-like, fantastic answer at a huge point in time in that game. And that last touchdown to Grimes to really seal the play. I know the team calls this the Brady play. They call it Brady-Brady, right, for Tom Brady. And I think he really was the first to do this, where you motion out your receiver coming towards your quarterback. Your two receivers block. You throw that quick little pop pass, and Grimes scores. Van Jefferson was incredible on this play, Alan. He actually blocks two guys. He blocks the outside corner and the nickel, creating this little tunnel for Grimes to run through. We've been picking on the wide receiver blocking for a while. It's definitely getting better. It was fantastic in this game. And it led to, as you just saw, several of the game's biggest plays. So great job, I thought, executing our play calls in this game. I think overall, this was our best offensive game start to finish. The weather didn't make it look that way. But on film, schematically, how we did things, you can hear we're only bringing up a couple of of small things here. But to score 38 points on the road in that kind of weather, in that kind of situation, that's fantastic. And again, excited to see Dan looking like he's taking a step to lean into what we have. So 
the play that's gotten criticized a lot, obviously, is the offensive pass interference to Freddie or to, I guess, Swain or Hammond. I guess Hammond is the one who should have been called. That's a really creative play, though, to get Pitts that touchdown. Even if you run that correctly, or if I think actually if Kyle throws it quicker, you, you wouldn't get a penalty called on it. That's a really smart play to Pitts right there. You've created some really interesting stuff for people to watch on film with Kyle Pitts, both outside and inside. And that play right there, that's what you want to see around the goal line. If you have receivers and Trask, you should be able to hit those type of plays you, where they don't necessarily have to do something incredible like we talked about the Van Jefferson route against LSU, that whip route. You know, or you don't have to ask them to do something dramatic. I love that we don't throw these fades into the end zone or do the silly stuff that some people do around the goal line. That for the most part, when Trask drops back to pass, there's something really interesting going on. And another great comment there. We mentioned we implored Dan or Coach Mullen. Danny Warfel jumped on me for calling him Dan. By Coach. The way. Yeah, he jumped. He told me it was a point of feedback. I've listened to the podcast. I love it. You should you should give him some respect by calling him either Mullen or Coach Mullen. And he's right about that. I said, you know, you're right. I should I should work on well, that. You and Dan, you know, have like your weekly yeah, brunch. Yeah, I've been calling him Dan all the time. But I'll, I'm going to try my best here for you for UDW to call him Coach Mullen, and I'm I'm sure I'll suck at that. But we did talk a lot about our struggles to to run regular plays in the red zone, and hats off to Mullen because we've run a lot of regular plays in the red zone, and because of that, Kyle Trask had four touchdown passes. So that's huge. Again. I'm seeing a lot of things I was hoping I would see. This is uncharacteristic stuff for Coach Mullen. This is not his normal MO. And this is exciting because he's being rewarded tremendously by Kyle Trask. But let's not sleep on that. Let's talk about Trask, Allen. Yeah. His line for the day, 21 of 33 for 200 yards. Not his normal output, obviously. Uh, four TDs, though. Exceptional. One, inter- one interception. Tenth best QBR of the day? No, this season of in college season. football. I was like, that doesn't seem right. Yeah, of the season. Of the season. Now, Felipe Franks last year finished forty eighth. If you're wondering what that looked like, but he's currently tenth best, third best in the SEC behind Tua and uh, Burrow. Joe Burrow, two highs. And finals. again, if he had a running game at all, this would be much higher. He also missed out on playing cupcakes, only playing a half against um, Towson. Right. Yes. His numbers are phenomenal. He's trending as some of the best guys to play the position at this school. So if you're still not sold on him and you think we're rah-rahing Trask all the time, yes, we definitely are. And he's earning all the accolades thus far. Enjoy this ride. Okay, let me ask you about how the wet ball affects him. I, you know, I kind of talked about some of the early throws that the announcers were getting on him for weren't actual problems. He, it's an over, intentional overthrow and then a busted play. But it did obviously affect him. How do you think it affected him most? So when you feel like you can't put the same velocity or accuracy on the football, what happens is you tend to focus on this. If you've ever been injured in life, you'll understand this. You think about your injury. You really can't think about anything else. You're thinking about taking this step and not hurting yourself or making this movement and not feeling pain. For him, it was not throwing interception because I can't trust where the ball's going and I really can't throw it hard enough. So he kind of had to feel his way into how to throw the ball in those conditions how to move around, how to plant his feet. And that caused him really for the first time on film, Allen, not to see the field well. Automatic reads he makes so fast he wasn't seeing. That's because you're really just thinking, if I got to throw this route to this guy, it's going to take every ounce of mental energy I have to kind of shot put this thing to him. And you saw that a lot of those balls were coming out very soft, right? 
But on the flip side, you saw Halinski missing by 10 and 15 yards at a time. Nowhere near guys. So Trask was doing what it took. Halinski sort of just, they abandoned the pass, but it affected him a lot on the read. So people were saying, hey, you can't read what's going on. That's why. In the fourth quarter, he went right back to the old Kyle Trask. And on the first touchdown pass to Copeland, that was a tremendous throw in this weather. Was it about a yard behind him? Sure. But in this weather, great route by Copeland. I mean, beautiful route. They highlighted it on the show, right? Great route, great throw, great ball placement. Trask takes the snap, looks right to move the safety, throws the ball into the seam, throws it to the outside shoulder, wind up scoring a touchdown. That was absolutely high-level quarterbacking in this kind of weather. And on the interception, number three, Javon Kinlaw, who was a beast He's all a day long, just beats Garage, gets right in the face of Trask. They play a nice defense where their linebacker basically takes two steps in like he's going to defend the run, but is robbing that route the whole way. Steps in the lane. Trask has got a 6'6 guy in front of him. He's got a linebacker robbing. He's got a wet ball. He floats it. Pick. So good defense by them. Wet ball combo. That does not happen, right? But it happens there. And so I think if you look at his day, it really affected him. And then you get into the fourth quarter where Steve Seitz watching the game with us says, this is where the legend of Trask continues, right? And this is before anything happens. And he's totally right. That fourth down play, Allen on film is incredible. Nobody is open. They called the perfect defense on that play. Trask stays in the pocket. He escapes the pocket. He keeps his eyes downfield. Pitts basically just posts up yes. in the paint and gives him a target. And he Great paints that Pitts target and a phenomenal catch by Pitts in the biggest play of the game. That was typical Trask. Eyes downfield the whole way, scanning the field. But maybe his best read, which truly told you how back he was, was the throw to Copeland. He escapes the pocket. Copeland is not open. The defender on Copeland comes down to get Trask. Trask sees him, delivers the ball perfectly. And then he caps this off with an incredible pass to Swain. Swain is being ridden like a horse on the corner route he's running. And so is, is uh, I think it's Grimes on the post. Both of these guys are just being ridden. It's pass interference everywhere, right? Trask throws him open into the end zone. Because Swain had wound up running his corner route really flat. So the steeper you run it, the more vertical, the flatter, right? Obviously not as vertical. He sees the space, throws it there. Swain gets off the hold, turns his head, balls right there, touchdown. Just incredible stuff and the biggest plays of this game. So he kind of went from figuring it out, not seeing the field well, to seeing the field well, to making exceptional plays that were not initially open. That is what high-level quarterbacks do. There's no doubt that Trask won this game for Florida in the fourth quarter with his quarterbacking skill. The plays were not getting our guys wide open. He did not have easy options. He had to hang in there. He had to scan the field. Really tremendous job. And lastly, what I want to say about Trask this far throughout the season, the hallmark of an excellent quarterback, Allen, is generally one thing. It's distribution to a lot of different players. If you watch Tom Brady play, every broadcast, you're going to hear about it. Tom Brady's won the ball to seven different receivers this game. Seven different guys have caught a pass. Well, look at the stats the Gators have on this team and look at how many guys have 15 or 20 plus catches and go compare that to the past 10 years. It's incredible what's happened with Trask at the helm. We are super dangerous. You cannot just take away one guy. You can't even just take away two guys. We have so many matchup problems. He's executing well. Great fourth quarter. Fantastic finish of the game. And as Steve Seitz said, the legend of Trask truly is building. Love it. So even something that, I think it would go unnoticed because he's not a guy who's a lethal runner by any means. Right before that fourth down play to Pitts, he gets loose. There's nobody open. Navigates the pocket well. 
and then scrambles and picks up five or six yards that make that fourth down manageable, allows us to take that chance to complete the play. He was amazing on those two plays. Like He could have been sacked on either one of them. If he has bad pocket presence, he probably is sacked on that first one. Stays calm, eyes downfield. Okay, I got to run it here. I got to get some yardage. That is a really heavy play. You know, I think there might be moments where he could have been tempted to throw the ball into a bad window. He didn't do that. Loved, loved what I saw from him. That is really hard on the road. Pressure of the season, right? If you lose this game, a lot of your dreams melt away. He seemed unflappable. I loved what I saw from him. Like you said, distribution to so many receivers. I think, you know, Pitts is a little bit of his security blanket, and rightly so. He looks to him when he gets in trouble. He probably should. But you don't see him staring down receivers like, okay, I got to throw it to Van Jefferson because I don't know what else to do. If you're open, he'll hit you. You see a guy like Freddie Swain all of a sudden become, people like, Freddie Swain is always open. Well, he's not always open. But when he is open, Trask finds him. Love what we're seeing from him. Incredible stuff. So I think we're giddy on this podcast because you can't expect this from college quarterbacks all the time. No, and as Chris Musgrove, our guest for Auburn said, comes to the house and he's just so excited. He's like, I don't know how many people that truly know or understand like what you have in Kyle Trask right now. It's like coaches wait a decade or so to get a guy that can read fields like this. And this is true. And of course, we're excited. Are we extra excited? Am I a human? Am I extra excited because we were early on this and we talked about this? Sure, of course. But really beyond that, we love winning, but also for me, and everyone knows this, I love winning with a certain style, which I think is maybe more an optimal way to play. This trends in that direction. And, and let's not act like the best gift of this season, Alan, which is unfortunate. And we said it at the time. What did we say when Franks went down? We said, you never wish this upon anyone. We certainly wish Frank's health, but his injury could have been the greatest thing to happen to these 2019 Florida Gators. And that is without a doubt true. This entire team is different now. The expectations are different. And that is the importance of the quarterback position. That's why we evaluate it way more than any other position. And we're going to see where it takes us for the rest of this year. Ways to improve on offense. Continue to lean into this idea of being unbalanced because balance does not matter. Increase your yards per play. Run the best play every play based upon what the defense is giving you. Emory usage. Continue not to use Emory. If you get another mud bowl, I would consider having some packages for him because sometimes you might need to regress yourself to move the ball. But outside of that, Emory should be what he's doing. Backup quarterback doing what Trask did, which is spending time in the film room, learn, learn, learn. And let's not, Alan, underestimate this effect. When you have a guy like Trask, who's such a hard worker and film guy who's also winning, other guys become hard workers and film guys because they see it working. So this should inspire Emory to recognize what it looks like to be a backup quarterback who's growing. A lot of great things happening program-wise. And my last thing, which we'll keep talking about, more Pierce, better route combinations. Let's keep working these man-to-man route combinations. Let's keep working these two- and three-man route combos. And let's let these east-west screens die, please. Not the screens that come on third down that sometimes work. These first and second down Old school Urban Meyer 1.0, Dan Mullen 1.0 screens. To those, We don't need those with a real quarterback. Those should only occur when teams are playing well off the ball. Sure. I think you'll always see them because they're 
on the front page of our playbook. And if the defense is not committing enough people over there because they're so terrified of the middle of the field, throw five or six of them. Make them commit another guy over there. If you're going to pick up seven, eight yards a pop, uh, famously, this is Ron Zook era, Larry Fedora against Georgia. We threw, I think, like what felt like 60 bubble screens in a game because Georgia would never put another guy over there. And we're like, okay, I guess we'll keep throwing them. So, again, what the defense gives you, if it's extremely effective, keep doing it. And I agree about Emory. I do think there's a place for him on this team in gadgety situations, right? Whether you're going to put him in there, let him throw a funky pass. If it's a fourth and one that you feel like you've got a play designed for him. But not in the packages like they did against LSU. So, I wouldn't panic if I saw him out on the field in a particularly interesting situation if the coaches got something cooked up. But I don't – I agree. Let's let Kyle Trask be Kyle Trask. Let's let the chef cook. One other thing I would say, you know, we talked about more Pierce, less Pirine. I, wanted, I would love to see Pierce get some carries in situations – that P Ryan has been getting them in. So not just more Pierce, but more Pierce in particular situations. So on those third and shorts where teams load up and we're going to run it anyway, because that's what you should do. You might see him break a few more because he's so strong and teams are so close in those situations. If he gets to the second level, he's strong enough and fast enough to really break some big runs. I think he's got good vision for those situations too. So P Ryan doesn't do a bad job in the situation. He's, he's reliable, we pick it up more often than not. But Pierce, I think, is especially dangerous in those situations. So not just more Pierce, but more Pierce in those types of situations. Yeah, he's definitely more of a hammer than than would be P. Ryan. And, you know, is it right to run on third and short? I would say it depends on what they're doing. But if you're going to do it, let's say it's second. How about this? Second and short in the goal line where if you go heavy package and they go heavy package, you're equal. They're, they're plus one on you. But that's okay. That's not against the numbers. Pierce you're, should get that carry. You're trying to pick like a yard. Pierce should get that yeah. carry every time. Yeah. He, and he, do, he doesn't. And that's inexplicable to me because he gets the hole a lot harder and he only fumbles when he gets concussed on a targeting play. So I'm with you 100% on that. All right, Florida defense, I wrote down consistently meh. This game was like some things we did well and yeah. some things we were tragically bad in. It was just sort of the performance was... Man, like we won, we got enough out of them, but it was not, I think, building anyone's confidence that this defense feels elite again to you. Well, here's the problem. Last week, obviously LSU spooked us, I think. That we did some weird stuff and never shifted out because I think we were terrified of their offense overall. We're not terrified of USC's offense but I wonder how much Grantham felt hamstrung by not having Grenard and Zuniga in there. Like if you cannot create a consistent pass rush, does that force you to do things that you normally wouldn't want to do, whether that's bring pressure from other places, obviously, or how you want to play on the back end because you can't cover long enough in certain situations? So we entered the game with a game plan that was similar to that. We expected them to run the ball a lot, so we played a lot of man. And we tried to keep plus one of a number in the box. So we said, we're not ever going to let you have a good numbered situation to run. We're also not going to load the box where you'd go plus two, which we did a couple of times. We're going to kind of still hedge against the pass, but lean more towards the run, which is a safer way to play it. 
Uh, again, owing to if you can't get any kind of pass rush, you cannot expect your man defense to cover for three or four seconds. That's a perfectly reasonable way to enter into a game. You're going to see where my frustration comes based upon how the game goes. USC countered that with a plan to run the ball and take occasional passing shots. I think their game plan was different, Alan, than it would have been. I think they, unlike us, went with a much more heavy run plan because of the weather. Again, on film, they were pretty balanced. They actually passed the ball quite a bit. They were very, very hesitant to pass the ball in this game. It's some matchup, but I think it was more rain, especially early on looking at how much Helinski was struggling to even put the ball close to his receivers. They sort of abandoned it, and to their credit, they were having a good amount of success running the ball in what was a back-and-forth game, which is what they wanted. The fault I have, and we'll jump right into it since we teed it up, with our plan was we did actually get very, very good four-man pass rush, Allen. Surprisingly so, we were moving that pocket on the few times they wanted to pass with the guys we were rolling in there, which I was pretty impressed with. At that point in time, especially as the game wore on and they continued to gouge us with big runs, I was surprised and disappointed we did not bring a safety into the box pretty much every play because Helensky cannot throw a pass. We played man against him. He wasn't even close aside from that jump ball to Brian Edwards. Right. So we're inviting him to throw deep every time he threw. It was 10 yards over the guy. Nowhere near it. Yeah. So you think as a coordinator, I'm going to feel real confident and I'm going to make him do it, right? I'm going to make him prove to me he can complete a single deep pass against my man coverage. And if he does, I'll respect it and I'll bring a safety back. We didn't. We kept playing it safe. And yes, we got the win, but I think I think that affected us. And again, in a way that we could have improved on schematically. Simple decision there would have been to just bring a guy in the box dare them, tempt them, beg them to do something they did not want to do, but we kept allowing them to do what they wanted to do. And again, that violates the first rule of football, the first rule of Bill Belichick football, and I love him as a defensive coordinator, take away what the offense wants to do most. That was run the ball, and we really never fully committed to that. So I'm going to give us a you know, a, a down mark for that one. I didn't love how we continued with the game and our game plan there. Well, one thing I think that we both noted they really use that cat blitz, that blitz from Henderson, effectively, both stopping the run and causing some havoc. Henderson was really effective coming off the ball there. And maybe one of the biggest plays in the game, they send Henderson. So it's supposed to be a delayed draw, which they have burned us with in that quarter frequently. The running back has no choice but to turn around and block Henderson because otherwise he's going to get blown up. But because he does that, Helensky doesn't know what to do. Gets sacked by Zach Carter. Great job calling that blitz into that play. But we did it several other times. We started sending Henderson fairly frequently, which, you know, if you're sending a corner blitz, you want it to be disguised. You don't want to do it all the time. But he's great at it. His acceleration to the ball is excellent. I thought he tackled better in this game, so I want to give him some props. He stuck his nose in there a couple times. I think he's seen that enough on film that he can't keep doing that. So good job by him. Good job by the coaching staff dialing that up at the right time. Yeah, that was the thing we did best in the what we did right category was the usage of those blitzes, whether it's corner blitzes, nickel blitz with Trey Dean, which we said he does well and he does do that well, or just blitzes in general, that fourth down play when we brought Miller right up the gut on an A-gap blitz. Really solid use of blitzes. This is what Grantham has his PhD in. It's what he's best at. I thought that was really solid. Uh, again, you use a corner blitz and not another type of blitz because you're trying to add one to the run game but do it safely. 
which goes into that bigger strategy we had, which is what I'm saying. I didn't love given how they looked, but the blitzing strategies and how we employed them was was obviously fantastic. D-line, again, was actually solid against the pass. I thought both Zachary Carter, number 17, and then Kyrie Campbell, number 55, had a really nice game on film. They were disruptive. They were frequently beating their man. Uh, surprising from Zachary Carter, hasn't done a whole lot this year. Campbell's been solid in yeah, most he's been of our, the games. He's been our, our best D-tackle, I think, on film. He had a really, really nice game, very disruptive. He was the only guy, I think, on film, Alan, that had a chance to beat his man or even a double team and stop the run before it got to the linebackers. They were doing a great job of sealing most of our D-line against the run. But against the pass, they were pretty solid. And, of course, we were very solid on third down and against the pass because of that. Yeah, and we're playing a lot of young guys, Bogle, Diabate. Some, both those guys are undersized. Carter is a lot of times playing the big end or sometimes tackle just because we don't have enough players. Luke Ankrum is serviceable at best if you're relying on him in high leverage situations that's not good so I think they did a serviceable job now they got beat up in the run game in the third quarter we're going to talk about that in a minute about maybe what was happening there but overall I think they they did the job credibly if you're missing your best two guys that cascades all the way down the line moon is banged up Adam Schuler has been effective at times especially when you line him up next to Zuniga and Grenard he's a problem he was a little in and out this game. He got hurt early on. He came back, but I don't think he was, you know, a hundred percent there. So, you know, good job by him of getting that out. But you're right, Campbell looked good. Carter maybe turning the corner a little bit from a guy who's just, you know, fine to put out there for some snaps, a depth guy to a guy who could make a difference potentially. And this is where we keep saying the Gators would struggle this year if we had injuries in these places, and one of them was the defensive line, especially the D-tackle spots. I don't think anybody assumed we lose both of our ends, but this is still a sign of of the gift that is not giving, which is McIlwain's horrific train wreck recruiting during his last couple of years, which are killing us on the offensive line. Although, thank you, Jim McIlwain, for taking a, a flyer on Kyle Trask. And that's the gift that keeps giving, is he did give a, He took away Will Greer, and he gave Kyle Trask, so he gives and takes away. But we're feeling the effects of recruiting primarily. You shouldn't lose two guys and then be like almost in emergency pull the mode down. You should feel that pain. If Auburn lost two of their defensive linemen, well, yeah, they would that, feel for that sure. pain. Especially at that level. There's guys who are so good that they're not – the next guy has to be significantly below him. Otherwise, you're just having an embarrassment of riches like an Alabama-esque situation. Correct. And in Alabama, even their freshmen that are all five stars, they're not anywhere near as good as the guys that would play yet. So even if you're loaded, they're not there yet. But we're playing guys that are beneath that level, and you're just crossing your fingers and hoping you can survive, and everyone that gets injured is more of a problem. However, you can still manage your personnel, Allen, I think, better than how we're doing it. So let's pick on this again. I'm not going to spend really a lot of time more than one or two sentences on this one because I keep saying it. Somehow Steiner and Taylor played a lot. Again, they They're actually so played more snaps than Sean Davis and Brad Stewart. I don't care what narrative anybody gives me about how they're better against the run. They're not. They're terrible. They're terrible. Steiner frequently does not line up well. They gouge him for another huge run. He whiffed on multiple tackles. Taylor at times give halfway effort on film. Taking terrible angles. Too. No idea how either of these guys are even playing for a single snap on this team, and it is distressing. It's bad. There's no accountability. If I'm a defender, I'm looking at that, and I'm thinking, what is my coaching staff doing? Are we playing recreational? Are we playing intramurals here, Alan? I don't know what is going on. That has got to stop. Secondly, we alluded to this, but Ventrell Miller, number 51, is just outclassed 
on defense. He got just, I don't know what to say, Alan, annihilated in this game on film. He couldn't get off blocks. He couldn't fill the right gap. If we ever had him in the middle and flexed out Reese to cover somebody, it was a disaster if they ran the ball. So two things here. One, I don't know what we can do. You know, we, we put Houston in a little bit. We obviously don't trust him that much. We don't really have like an obvious answer to go there. But at this point in time, I'll tell you what the answer definitely isn't. And it's number 51, Ventral Miller playing middle linebacker at any given time when it's a four-man front in him. I mean, he is just giving up 30 yards of pop when that happens. It's not good. He looks slow. He doesn't feel well. He's actually a better coverage guy to me than he is a run stopper. So a simple twist here. Let's assume the coaches are right, Alan. We don't know this. I can't know this. I haven't seen any other guys enough to evaluate it. And he's our best option out there. We have got to leave David Reese in the middle. David Reese is such a good run stopper. Anytime we make him leave, you should be very afraid. A huge run's about to happen. So that's noticeable. And then lastly, Trey Dean played a lot less this game. Trey Dean is still a really good athlete. He should not play nickel. You know where Trey Dean should play is at safety. You got to at least give him some reps there because guess what? He's a great downhill player. And if you're safety, you're further off the ball. He can react to these vertical routes being further off the ball. You're not flipping your hips as fast. Big, strong kid. Yet we continue now to just kind of whittle his playing time away. He's like a package guy. I don't know. I don't love what's happening on the personnel side of our defense. In fact, I'm losing some faith here with what we're doing and how we're doing it. We know these issues are here. We know LSU is looming. Maybe Alabama's looming if we can beat Georgia. We know these teams are looming. Then you go to the playoff, and who do you have? Ohio State? Oklahoma? Right? Dream your scenario up. Those are all real bad situations, and we don't seem to have the hair-on-fire urgency I would have if I'm a D.C. saying, we have to fix some of this stuff right now. It just sort of seems like we're in a timeshare, and we're uninterested in fixing it. Yeah, there's stuff early on that you want to – maybe you're saying, let's get these guys enough reps to see how they're doing Vincent Miller is interesting because there, there are games that he's looked good on film, playing in run-heavy scenarios. He did get wiped out in this game. He he played really bad against LSU. I do think there's hope for him. I, I don't think that's a – I'm not sold on, like, he can't be a productive member of this defense. I think if put in the right situation, he can be. You've got to get him – Aimed at the right thing. A little bit Voshan-esque. If you get him aimed at the right target, I think he can be effective. You see him, he's got the speed to close. You see him on that A-gap blitz, like you mentioned. He gets there in time. He's a physical guy. He's got the size and speed. Enough to play linebacker effectively for us. He's not playing with a lot of confidence or a lot of effectiveness right now, but we need him. Or we have to do something totally different if he's not going to be a part of the game plan. It's going to be interesting to see what the coaches do. Have a bye week. I don't know if they'll reevaluate, but they have the opportunity to. A couple other struggles that we should address during the bye week. One, we struggled to get lined up. Ankrum is a senior. Lines up offsides twice. Those are simple little things. Make sure your helmet's not over the ball kind of stuff, right? But more importantly, something we've mentioned almost each and every week that is not getting any better, Alan. We are a terrible drop eight zone team. And what drop eight means is you send three guys at the quarterback and you put eight guys in coverage and you're almost always zoning. We give up the same dig route every single week. It's, it's really as bad. if we don't see it on film. And I'll tell you the reason why. Both Marco and CJ stare in the backfield way too much, especially 
Marco. When you're playing zone, you're not actually just staring into the backfield the entire time. You have to keep leverage on your man to know where he is. And you'll see Marco, he'll be that outside zone guy. He'll let the dig go while staring at the quarterback, and he loses contact with his guy, his zone, his spot, and he's wide open. It happened in the first quarter. It happened later in the game. We're terrible at this. And to me, it's the way it's being taught. You have to cover these zones correctly. You have to teach your guys how to cover these zones, what it looks like to cover a zone. You're not just standing in this spot. If no one's there, go help someone else, right? So this is frustrating. It's helpful to be able to drop eight in football and yeah, not there's always times have to play man. It's much, yeah, you don't want to have to rely on man because obviously there's a little more danger in that. But if every time you drop eight, you're giving up a big play, why ever do it? Which we shouldn't. We should just scrap it. But it also makes me raise questions about how it's being taught right now. It's just not sound. And really, at this point in time, I'd be happy never to see it again unless we fix it in the body because we are atrocious at it. And it's giving up big third downs to teams in big situations. I hope we don't do it. But that's something to note, something that is fixable because it's not a talent situation here, Alan. It's just a matter of understanding what this looks like. And teams obviously know as soon as they read that we're dropping eight, they run some digs and they just doop, drill it like yep. it's nothing. So in the third quarter, South Carolina, when they were at their most dangerous, was running the ball extremely effectively, like almost 13 yards a pop. They were doing some stuff that we are going to see again. If teams are capable of it, pulling two people, wiping out a whole side of our line, engulfing Miller, getting up to the next level. And of course, often J1 Taylor taking a bad angle. That's the stuff that you've got to clean up, right? There's enough talent on this team, even missing Zuniga and Grenard, that you shouldn't be getting gashed by a rather pedestrian group of, I don't know, South Carolina tailbacks, right? They're not bad. They're fine. They're missing their best guy. Rico Dowdle was hurt after the first play. Feaster is fine. He'll hurt you, obviously, if you let him. In that situation... South Carolina has not been beating you with the pass down the field. Let's forget the flea flicker. That was fluky. To get eaten up when it, you're, ex- I would think, expecting them to come out and run the ball in the second half was really frustrating. Now, eventually, we cleaned it up a little bit. We stopped giving up so much yardage. We made some nice adjustments about who we were playing along the defensive line and where we were positioning them. So, Again, we we fixed it, but that seems like an obvious they're going to come out and run at. They had success in the first half, not a lot of success throwing the ball. They have the lead. They have Will Muschamp as coach. And South Carolina actually decent running the ball. Like their averages are not bad. I think that's due to the fact that they passed more. It's funny. You would think if a Muschamp team ran the ball as effectively as they did, they would just run it all the time. But it's a little bit more that they're, with Helinski slightly more dangerous. So, you know they're okay at it. Why would you let them get some momentum that way? That was really frustrating to watch. Again, fixed it. Fourth quarter, played much more effectively. Um, but that's something that I think everybody saw. If we are, if we let teams stretch us out and pull two people at us and eradicate everybody in the field, we're going to see that all day, especially from Georgia. Yeah, and that's what it comes down to, the conviction to trust your players. Where are we best at? We're best at corner. If Sean Davis is on the field, you have two corners and Sean Davis who are fantastic in coverage. Yet what do we do? We're playing Steiner and we're playing Taylor. We're playing Miller in the middle by himself. 
we're spreading everyone out and we're running two safeties and they're running the ball at us. It's baffling, Alan. You need to get as many guys in the box as you can until a team proves they can pass the football on you. And that's the part that's going to keep frustrating. That's elementary. That's like level one thinking. It's base level game theory. It's not even game theory. It's so obvious. If the opponent's doing this to you, stop them and make them do something else. And we were content to say, yeah, here you go. We're going to have two safeties. So we need two safeties against your passing team. And then on top of that, we have two safeties that cannot tackle at all. Well, hopefully, we're going to talk a lot about Georgia next week. But there's some very obvious strategic advancements that we would need to make against Georgia, right? They don't have great wide receivers. They are excellent at running the ball. How do we respond to that? How do we use very interesting guys like Amari Bernie? How do we use some of our defensive linemen? We'll get into that next week. But there's a lot of stuff like Georgia, right? There's a very obvious way, I think, that you should play them. Will we execute on it? Yeah, it seems obvious to us. We've been talking about it each week. So disappointed again with the strategy, not what I would have wanted to see. It wasn't nearly as bad as LSU, but it also wasn't as good as I think it could have been regardless of who the personnel was. All right, ways to improve. Get both the strategy and the tactics correct. It's very possible to have a great strategy on paper. You enter the game and your opponent has done something nice or different. Adjust with tactics. Recognize these personnel issues. I beg you. I implore you. Grant them. Your staff, please fix them now. I have no hope at this point in time, Alan, that's going to happen. We're not addressing the nickel situation. We, I mean, Bernie has done a nice job there. He's still not logging a ton of snaps there. So I don't know what our plan is. We basically don't have a plan. I don't like that. Please, please stop playing Steiner and Taylor. It's not going to happen. We're going to keep saying it. Dean should really never play at nickel again. And Dean is better than just a guy you bring into blitz. Hey, you got a safety problem. You have two guys who are terrible. Be more creative. Look, Dabo Sweeney won a national title, Allen, because he did something that is very hard to do. He benched a quarterback who was undefeated to put in Trevor Lawrence because he did what needed to be done for future games. Kelly Bryant would have won all those games last year until they went to the playoff, right? So take a risk. Do something here. We got problems. Fix them. Be willing to explore other defenders for pass coverage. At this point in time, it seems my dream of Chester Kimbrough was not going to happen. We're probably going to redshirt this guy. I still love this guy. To me, he screams nickel. And again, Grantham, I know we like these big guys, Allen, at this let's rename the nickel the star position. Forget it. That's not college football anymore. College football and the NFL, it's passing oriented. Teams are only going to continue to pass the ball more. You need a better coverage nickel than you do a run stuffer. That can be secondary to me. I'd lean more that way. Those are my ways to improve. All right, let's jump down to special teams. I want to shout out my boy Tommy T. Not just as a punter, but as a holder. Had a really high snap. Got that ball down. Got the kickoff. Loved it from him. And his punting has been excellent. There's some chance for some shanks. He wasn't at his peak, but bad weather will also affect a punter. He does this better than anybody I've seen. He's willing to wait and not punt the ball. You see him just standing back there waiting until our coverage can get down there. You see Jefferson feel the ball, the two, because he waited for those guys to get down there. Now, again, you can't all, if they bring the house at you, you've got to get it off. But if they're going to let you sit back there and wait, I love it from him. It's ballsy. It's great. It's fantastic. And Caleb Sturgis likes to talk a lot about how you can only do that in college. Hold on to the ball. In fact, one of the few teams in college football that runs NFL punt an NFL field goal, if you had to guess, Alan, would be who? Alabama. That's correct. They're really the only one. So against Alabama, 
that junk ain't gonna work and we would know that but almost every other team in college football does not run NFL punt or NFL field goal because it's actually riskier to run that kind of style uh, which is funny to think it's riskier given it's better in the NFL but in the NFL you have special teamers who are college stars potentially right you don't have that in college you can't trust your special teams guys necessarily to always do the right thing or to assign their one-on-one blocks you play safer but Tommy's brilliant. If, if teams are going to let you do it, do it. It is a weapon to pin teams deep like that. And I am surprised that's been on film for two years now with Tommy that teams don't know, hey, if it's a short punt situation, we better come after him at some level or he's going to make us pay. Our special teams has been a dream this year. We keep I mean, talking yeah, we about killed it. it or I remember just talking about how bad it was two years ago, how much to where we are right now, night and day. Fantastic. I mean, we, we can talk about... And we did talk about Freddie Swain never returning a punt. That is maybe something we need to mention. Like, we are so conservative on punt return. Now, again, I don't want us to be reckless. If you're a a team that needs to generate yards at all costs, maybe more aggressive. I'm I'm okay somewhat with the let's you know fair catch every punt. Let's put Swain back there, who's not the most dangerous guy. But we're hyper conservative. I wonder if Dan would like to take that back in certain situations this season. We'll see how we are moving forward. Yeah, we might need that. You and I have been jumping on that all year long, and that is clearly the strategy. It's it's fair catch all the time, which you know, mathematically, if you're an analytics person, maybe you're going to write the show and say that there's an argument to be made to always do that. And it, I, it's not an awful strategy. It's not. I don't love it, I think, when you have the athletes we have. But analytically, you can argue that possession is one of the most important things in football, and it's never worth the risk given that the reward of hitting a big return is actually pretty small. And I'd be fine with that, but I don't think that's our strategy. Right? Dan's not necessarily an analytics monster. He's out here doing all this stuff. But there's times, I think, when you could make a return, especially when it's a little safer. It doesn't look like we're going to do that. But Swain, he never drops the ball. We'll take that. All right, coaching corner, just a couple this time. Just a couple, Alan. First half, a minute and 45 seconds left. We have the ball in the minus five, our own five-yard line. Do you like the decision to just run the clock out there? I don't hate it, right? In that field position, I assume that's what we're going to do. Now, we get a decent run. I thought we might pivot. But you haven't been having a lot of success. The weather is bad. You still got the whole length of the field to drive. You're getting the ball at the beginning of the second half. I don't think you feel like you're behind, like, if that had been against LSU and you have a good run, yeah, put your foot on the gas and go. Now, in a better weather game at home, I think we're more aggressive there. Dan tends to be aggressive. Like, he's not afraid of going for it there. I didn't hate it. Normally, I hate sitting on the ball pre-halftime. In this situation, on the road, bad weather, I, the expectation to get something out of it wasn't high enough for me that I was would kill him for being conservative there. No, I'm fine with this here for all the reasons you just mentioned. Typically, I'm, I'm always a fan of you have two minutes in a football game. You need to score. It's a game of scoring, but not in that situation. At that point in time, Trask had not passed the ball particularly well. He was not particularly comfortable. We were not passing the ball with ease. Uh, we had 95 yards to go, right? The rain was coming down pretty hard. There's no reason to think you're going to make that drive successfully, plus a couple of incompletes here and there, and South Carolina gets the ball back. To go in 10-10 at halftime, guaranteed, knowing you're getting the ball, is right where you want to be in a monsoon game. So I think you have to play the situation correctly, right? In warfare, not every tactic is always right. Some are better for certain situations than others. I have no problem with this in this situation. 
Again, most of the time, I would. I don't here. However, as a curious side note, Will Muschamp did a very Will Muschamp thing. So they call timeout with like 48 seconds left, and then we run the ball to get a third and one, and they don't call timeout, which is inexplicable. That was We're weird. on our own 25 or 26-yard line. So if you think you're going to try to get the ball back, you call timeout and try to stop us on third and one. But then he's like, meh, that's fine. We'll, we'll take it to halftime. So classic Will Muschamp move there that I thoroughly enjoyed. All right, last one. This one is is cool. I think it's good. If you're paying attention, late in the fourth quarter with a minute and 48 seconds left, we have a third down. We're on maybe their 40 or 50-ish yard line, right, right about there. We run a pass play. They still have a timeout left. We run a pass play, and we take a sack. Do you like the play call here, or would you rather just run it and punt it? I don't mind it there. I mean, I, the obvious move is to keep the clock running. Here's what the nice thing about Trask is that you could trust him, I think, in this situation. Again, it shows the coaches trust him not to make a boneheaded play. If it's not open, just eat it. Fall down. Doesn't matter. Field position at that point doesn't matter. Taking a sack doesn't hurt you. You're not trying to get lined up for a field goal. You don't throw an incomplete pass, which would obviously help them. And it, so taking a sack is fine there. I, I don't mind calling a pass play. You know what? If you run something and it's wide open and the guy drops it, people will kill you. Like, why don't you just run the ball? Well, the guy could also fumble too. You can't only think about worst case scenario in those situations. Yeah, I don't mind it. I loved it. I think that's the exact right thing to do. And it does show the most important thing you illustrated with your great answer, trust. You do that because you trust your quarterback. If Dan Mullen could put himself on the field with all the experience he has now in life, he would always roll out to look at a pass option and then just fall if it's not there. Because if you get it, it's like third and eight on this play, right? If you get it, the game is definitively 100% over. And you're only going to throw it if it's such a high percentage pass. The math tells you it's absolutely worth doing. And we ran a no-risk play. We basically just slid pits out to the right. And if they covered him, Trask was eating it, which is what happened. And if they didn't, he'd throw it. I loved it. Clock still runs. It still is their timeout. Yardage does not matter. It's totally irrelevant. You're punting anyway in that situation. I thought that was a really nice example of the proper thing to do in that kind of moment. I liked it a lot. Okay, a few bright spots. We talked about Copeland. He's a guy, I think, who is... You know, obviously been talented the entire time he's here, explosive the entire time he's here, getting more and more playing time. You know, had a couple really big plays, had a chance for a third one. Nice to see him shine a little bit in this game. Yeah, he was great. He ran all the routes correctly. We've known he's got high-level talent. He's going to be the main guy next year, depending on how many of our guys leave. Big game from him, big contributions. And I, that's what you want to see, right? A guy who has struggled to make the mental moves correctly. Right. And he's talked about how he has not really had the playbook down, which isn't a great look for him. Like, what else are you really focusing on here? But, And you can see that, but this is the beauty of having a coach who's a general who understands that you just don't play guys. You're not going to get all the snaps you want, Copeland, if you don't understand it. So you're going to play the plays you understand which is going to limit your playing time. It's a wonderful matchup of incentive. It aligns both people's incentives, coach and player. And it's great to see a guy who does things the right way get playing time because that's the proper reward system. Uh, Diabate, number 11. If you haven't seen him play a lot, we've talked about him before. He's a four-star linebacker, young guy, freshman playing. Some defensive end in this game because we were so thin there towards the end. Yeah, he he's like a linebacker in the 3-4. Yeah. But he was actually... Pretty effective. Their their right tackle had a really hard time 
containing him on the rush, which I think is is a promising sign. Again, right now, Miller's a three-star. David Reese is a three-star. Houston's, these guys are, are not as decorated as these younger guys we're starting to get. And you can see some of that on film. He's going to get way bigger between this year and next year. Alan, I was encouraged, though, to see some of the bursts he had, some of the moves he had there. Yeah, he looked good. Uh, and obviously, a true freshman along defensive lines. You, normally, you don't play true freshman on the defensive line in the SEC. That's a recipe for disaster. So he's not playing a ton, but they trust him out there. He's out there in not just garbage time. They, they'll play him. I think that's great. Bernie at nickel. I love Amari Bernie. He can do so many things. As we continue to calibrate what we can actually do with him, and he opens up so much stuff for us. So he's a guy I think the coaches could be a little more creative with moving forward, but thought he was great you know, covering downfield, which is what you want at that linebacker spot. He just eats it up. Yeah, he should play more, is my opinion. In fact, I'd try him some more, even though he's a little undersized compared to Miller. If Miller's not getting off blocks, try someone else. Bernie well, tends to be a good run stuffer, and if teams are going to spread you out anyway, that allows you, if you have Bernie in instead of a nickel, if you go dime, leave Reese in the middle, bring Bernie in, you know, change it up some. Well, that's, that is a really nice thing, what you're, you're getting to. Let's say a situation like a very run-heavy team like Georgia, where if you just go dime, you can't go heavy – uh, defensive back because they're just going to run at you. So you bring him in, leave him in at linebacker, and if they do surprise you with the pass, he can cover it. So versatile weapon, like to see him get some more snaps even than he has gotten so far. All right, final thoughts. Yeah, I've got a go question for, for you. So it felt like towards the end of this game, all of our players were dropping like flies. Like the fourth quarter was like gator down, gator down, gator down. Grimes goes down with what I think most people think is a meniscus injury of sorts, unless you've heard confirmed otherwise. If it is a meniscus and he's got to get it scoped, he could be out for three to four weeks. If it's just a meniscus where he'll deal with it for the rest of the season, he could play. But that happens with him just gathering an onside kick, right? So Grimes down. Tony, still a question mark for Georgia. Yes, he's supposed to return. But as you say every week, you never know what the heck they're talking about in Florida's injuries. Zuniga and Grenard, two high ankle sprains. Those tend to linger. Are we in trouble injury wise? Are we going? Are you worried about this heading into the Georgia week? Yes, definitely. You saw Dunlap down the field, Schuler get dinged up, really banged up against along that defensive line, which theoretically could be the strength of the team if the unit is all the way healthy, especially on that side of the ball. There, you do potentially pass a point of no return. I, I think the Grimes and Toady injuries. We have enough wide receivers that that wouldn't sink us. And there's some guys who aren't, you know, Copeland isn't like maxing out his snaps. You could even throw a few guys out there like Wells who can run some routes for you if you need to get guys a breather. I'm not so worried about that, although Grimes is dangerous, Tony's dangerous. Having them there is obviously a plus. I think the entire game against Georgia turns on are Grenard and Zuniga healthy. That's unfortunate. But I do think when you're playing at that high level and those are some of your best players at key positions, if you don't have them, reduces your chances to win by so much. So I don't think we've tipped over injury wise. Like again, we've got some guys back. Hopefully we'll have all of these guys back. No one is going out for the season. We think, but something to monitor for sure. Yeah. The storyline going into the Georgia week is, is going to involve injuries and that's always unfortunate. You never want that to be a storyline. You want it to be a footnote, but it is, and it will be. All right, we're going to talk about the Week 8 national games and the SEC Roundup. Before we do so, it's brought to you by mybookie.ag. 
No one gives you more ways to win than they do. MyBookie's got the fastest payouts and better lines than any other sportbook. Join now and MyBookie will double your first deposit. Use the promo code GATORNATION to activate the offer. That promo code is GATORNATION. Visit MyBookie.ag today. You play, you win, you get paid. We've had a lot of scuttlebutt on the airwaves, Alan, about posting our picks against the spread, which we are going to do this week. Those picks will come later. These are the games that already occurred. So if any of you enterprising individuals out there want to track what our record is against the spread this season, please do so and post yeah. it for If you want to go back and do that, that would be hilarious. To see, right? But yeah. I'd also say James and I have a pulse on college football. We'd like to talk about these national games as like a look into how things are going, what do we think is going to happen? It's really fun for us. Hopefully it's fun for you, but we are not bookmakers. We are not odds makers. Uh, it's called gambling for a reason. Just a little disclaimer there. All right, let's walk through what happened in the week eight national games. Headline of the day, Wisconsin 23, Illinois 24. Wisconsin blows it headed into a monster game against Ohio state. Again, I said at the top, this shows you the chaotic nature of college football. I I don't have words, really. Wisconsin is the team that doesn't lose these kind of right. games. Lovey Smith gets his first signature when he probably saves his job. They really can't get rid of him because of the contract they gave him. And signature win. Huge win for Illinois. Horrific, bad, terrible loss for Wisconsin. What was supposed to be an easy, easy win. There's no way to explain losses like these when you are a 30-point favorite to a random team that's not even a rival. No. You cannot lose. Bad, bad, bad loss for Wisconsin. Ohio State covers and then some. They win 52 to Northwestern, only posting three. Friday night game, lots of reasons to create scenarios where this game is close. Ohio State's real schedule now begins. We're going to find out what they're made of. Their schedule's been incredibly soft, and they have dominated it, which I don't want to sleep on. I don't want to sleep on that. I think Ryan Day has done a better job than Urban Meyer has against the cupcakes, against the teams he's overmatched. But coaches are made when they deal with teams that can handle them at some level. We're going to find out what Ohio State's made of over the next month. For sure. And if you're interested about the eye test, maybe they look better than anybody. They've looked fantastic. Clemson 45, Louisville 10. The thing that people are talking about this game is Trevor Lawrence continue to throw some bad picks into some bad situations. Are you worried about him? Are you worried about Clemson in general? No, I actually still think Clemson has the highest ceiling and best chance to win a national title. Trevor Lawrence himself was really poor for large stretches of this game, and then he finished fantastically well. He's forcing balls he shouldn't be forcing. We talked about this last year. The beauty of sports is that teams will adjust to what you do well. Teams are not allowing Trevor Lawrence to throw the routes he loves to throw. And rather than him being smart, taking checkdowns, he's not. He's gunslinging out there way too often. I do not think Trevor Lawrence will do this in big games. I think you're seeing him do this in games against overmatched opponents where you're winning each week by so many points. He himself is getting lax. I think Dabo's a really good coach, Allen, because he had not been riding Trevor and he lit him up consistently for large stretches of this game, which is good coaching to me. He's putting the pressure on him to say, this stuff has got to stop. He had kind of given him a bigger leash, not anymore, and I think that's sending the right message to Trevor. Now is the time, Trevor. Dial it back every week you're favored by 30. But you've got to start approaching each one of these games as though it's Ohio State or Oklahoma or Alabama or LSU, or hey, us. You can't 
just know you're going to win and start lobbing up passes into quadruple coverage. But I'm not concerned because I just think Trevor's too smart of a quarterback. And I think right now he's playing lackadaisical. I think they'll turn it around. I also think they're still the most complete team out there this year. I guess we'll find out, but not until the playoffs. Iowa State 34, Texas Tech 24. Iowa State goes on the road. This is a nice win for them. The Clones. Yeah, good win. They tend to struggle on the road. Texas Tech's been playing been playing decently well, so that's a nice win. Ah, the Rod Carey level Temple Owls 21, SMU 45. Incredible story out of SMU right now, if you're not paying attention. The coaching job that's going on down there, they're undefeated. They were not supposed to be nearly this good this year. Upstart, yes. Decent, yes. But this is a very good win over a very game Temple team. I'm paying attention to SMU. Yes, they look fun doing it. Shane Bouchelle, the former Texas quarterback, lighting it up in this offense. Okay, we put this one on here because it's funny. North Carolina 41, Vatek 43. This is six overtimes. If you're watching, if you're noticing the score is kind of funny and you weren't watching, new college football overtime rules. No longer can you just go into infinity. At some point, they will make you go... Basically, not starting from the 25, but just doing a two-point conversion. This game was funny. They, there was three missed field goals in a row, I think, somewhere in the middle of those overtimes. I I kind of like this rule. I think it's fun. Uh, what do you think about it? I generally am in favor of playing these games out until they end using the regular way to play football. I hate penalty kicks in soccer. I loathe them. I love how the NHL does it in the playoffs. I think it's brilliant. However, there's something about each team getting to go for two that is still, it's still football. It's not a penalty kick. It's not a field goal kicking competition. It's not throwing and hitting the upright. It is a football play. That's true. And the other team gets a football play. So if you had to do something, I don't mind it. It also only starts in the fifth overtime. So by then, you've had a million opportunities and decision points to win this game. It doesn't feel like a team could be like, wow, well, had they not changed the rule on us, we would have won. So I'm okay with it. I'm okay with it. It makes for really fascinating viewing because it's instant. I mean, it's instant. And in flag football, it turns to something similar. So I'm kind of used to that. But I don't hate it, which I think is impressive because most of the time I hate these shorten the game iterations. I'm fine with it. I love it. If you're in those overtimes, the drama is awesome. I mean, it's North Carolina Vatek in the middle of a terrible ACC season. This is in view of player safety. To continue to have to make them grind it out, the game is going to end quicker, which I'm fine with. And I think, you know, it's the odds of it going to that are so low. If it does, it's appointment viewing. All right. Baylor, undefeated Baylor, 45 at Okie State, 27. Another place where fantastic things are happening. Uh, the eyes of Texas are upon you. I mean, SMU and Baylor here are both undefeated. Great win. Oklahoma State, down year for them this year, but they've been cagey. They go and get an 18-point win like that on the road. That's that's solid. Baylor shaping up maybe to be Oklahoma's toughest game. We'll see. LSU 36, Mississippi State 13. LSU starts a little slow, is only kicking field goals. They turned it on. Mississippi State came out and played a lot more man defense which was encouraging to see. I enjoyed watching it. That being said, LSU scored on every single possession for like the first seven or eight times I had the ball, minus one. Uh, Joe Burrow is is extremely accurate at his first throw read. 
no one has really made him read yet. He still just leaves the pocket if he doesn't like what he sees, but that's working for him because he's gaining 15 yards of carry when it happens. Right. The way Alabama looks right now, it doesn't look like they have any chance of stopping him. I don't know. It's interesting. I was kind of lower on LSU because I feel like looking at them, I say, okay, this is how you would stop this team. But knowing how to stop them and having the guys to stop them could be different. Yeah, is there anybody in the country who has the horses to stop them? I think Clemson does. And that's why I think Clemson is ultimately the team that could win the national title this year. Is In a world where no one can play defense, which is this year, Clemson can. And I tend to like that. They can also play offense. But if no one else plays defense and one team does, I tend to favor them. Okay, Oregon 35, Washington 31. This is a great game back and forth. Oregon had to come from behind. This is a really good win for Oregon. Yeah, great comeback win for them. Atypical win of Oregon. Obviously, you're loving the crystal ball era at Oregon. You are beyond excited that one Willie Tigert is no longer at your school. What a gift that is. And for Washington, a lot of questions. The Jacob Eason era, not off to a good start. They were liked by a lot of analysts preseason, and they're they're not having a good season. He did play well in this game, though. This is maybe his best game and against a pretty stout Oregon defense. So maybe he's starting to turn the corner. I don't know if that, that definitely won't save their season. Oregon basically has wrapped up that division. Okay, UT, Tennessee, 13, Bama, 35. This game was actually fairly close once Tua went out. That's now the big storyline. Can he make it back in time for LSU? That's a big if. Yeah, it wasn't fairly close. It was extremely close with with Tennessee on the inch line, about to make it wildly exciting to go down a score. To add that surgery he had last year, it's on this it's on a different leg. He came back in 14 days and played really well in the playoffs. This time it's 20. I expect him to be fine. So they'll be okay, which is good news because their backup is not good. He's a three star, nothing worthy of playing Alabama at all the total opposite of a trash coming in uh you know Saban of course I think looked worried after the game he looked a lot less worried the next day when he knew what the world was but he was worried and he was worried because there is no Jalen Hurts on that roster right. and that was their season without Tua because they, they would have not had a shot they don't have a defense this year I thought the story here though could be Tennessee I read a lot of Tennessee I love Tennessee as we always talk about yeah. this I read a lot of their message boards afterwards and there was this weird falling in love with Pruitt. So one, they were close, which no one expected. Two, he had so much intensity in the game. And I've got to hand it to him. Tennessee played hard the whole game. They have not quit on him. They're not checked out. And then there's this bizarre moment in the game, Alan, the most famous part of the game where where uh, Guantanamo Bay, as we call him, right? Jarrett Garantano. Quarterback sneaks it on his own. The entire team is running a power draw play on the one-yard line, the most crucial part of the game. And he, on his own, chooses to quarterback sneak it and jump over the top, which leads to a fumble and a 100-yard Alabama touchdown. Pruitt loses his mind, grabs his face mask, which is something that's not seen in college football anymore at all, lays into him to the point to where now you just assume that Garantano might as well just transfer. Like, that's done. Of course, the announcers are commenting on it. Everyone's commenting on it. Not a great look there, but yeah, the Tennessee fans, they kind of loved it. Because when you're dead as a program, you just want intensity. That's not always wise, Alan. But I found it interesting that like it seems like the average Tennessee fan is maybe, let's give Pruitt another year here. We're that's seeing good. things get better. That's good. They can, they can have him. Give him another 10 yeah, years. That's what's like interesting. It. It's interesting. You know, They're so desperate. They're just hoping for anything. And I'll say you know, Mac Jones is obviously not a good quarterback. But we talked about this last year with Clemson to have a guy like Chase Bryce 
who can a guy who can just come in who's going to be there maybe four years knows he's not going to really play. Otherwise, you'd be playing a true freshman in that situation, or for Clemson, a nobody in that situation after Kelly Bryant had left. So you do need those guys to be a little stopgap, right? He can go beat Arkansas on the road, or at home, or wherever that game is next. So those guys are valuable to have. Now Kyle Trask has turned out to be a superstar, right? Mac Jones is not Kyle Trask, um, but still a valuable guy to have in the program, like we've said before. Boise State 25, BYU 28. BYU, again, you talked about them playing a crazy schedule. They are like the ultimate wild card team right now. They, they've played with, lost to, and beaten everybody, it feels like. Yeah, what a year for them. If you're a fan, BYU, I think, has a losing record now, down by one game still. But who cares? What a season. Like, that's everything you dream of. Like, these crazy games, if you're out of BYU, upsetting a top 15 opponent in Boise State who looks like they might finally survive and go undefeated. Wild result. We talked about it going into it. I thought BYU could be cagey in this game. Tough loss for Boise State, given all they had accomplished. That's almost just like you just pack it up and quit the season. It's so hurtful for them. They've come close so many times to going undefeated and kind of doing it, but it's just it's been difficult for them since Chris Peterson left. All right, Kentucky 0, UGA 21. This is 0-0 at halftime. They were in a weather game as well. Georgia really struggling offensively. I mean, Kentucky is, is playing Lynn Bowden at, court, at quarterback. He's their wide receiver. Not that you would expect them to do much. They they moved the ball some against Georgia, though, in a very kind of strange offensive formations and production. The, the storyline here, though, is Georgia's inability to move the ball. Yeah, and, you know, really, Lynn Bowden threw it, what should have been a touchdown pass to make right. this game a 14-7 deficit in the fourth quarter. Didn't get it. Kentucky also curiously didn't play their quarterback who was healthy again, who played against us, which I guess it was a weather-related decision. And it was 0-0 for so long. Why not? But yeah, the big story is Fromm, I think, finished with 35 passing 35. yards. So again, look at the difference, right? Kyle Trask on the road throws for 200 without an offensive line worth anything. Georgia, Kentucky, beat up, battered, playing a wide receiver, with a, a solid offensive line talent-wise, can't complete passes. So the panic button is being pressed heavily at Georgia right now. The only right. bonfire is heating up. They're freaking out. In fact, I think it's safe to say the message board culture right now at Georgia is that Georgia's going to lose to Florida. That's the message board culture. I don't think the average fan feels that way, but sometimes the message board leads how the average fans feel fascinating for them to come into their bye week where they feel like they do and we feel like we do. Really interesting stuff. Kansas, the Mad Hatter, 48, at Texas, 50. This was super close the entire way. Kansas almost pulling off the episode. Yeah, I mean, Texas takes the lead with a minute and 30 seconds left. Kansas drives down, scores, take the lead back, and Texas drives down again to score a field goal as time expires. Yeah. This would have been a... Epic and historic upset. Don't sleep on this. Unbelievable work from Les Miles to even put them in this position. Yeah, we've talked about awful. it. We've talked about it, Alan. Les Miles is crazy, but the dude is a good football coach. And he's doing it here at Kansas. They're winning some games. The fact they're even close in this game is borderline unbelievable. Kansas won last year, which was hilarious, and they almost won again. Do you think this says more about Kansas than or Texas? I think this is really bad for Texas. I think it says some stuff about Kansas, but the three-year rule is everything in life, and according to my evaluation of coaches, right? It's my own rule. I hold to it. This is not a good look for Texas. You have two losses. You won none of the biggest games you needed to win, 
and now you're almost losing to Kansas at home, it's hard to create it. I mean, they're going in the right direction. Things look nice. But if you're saying, can I win a national title? I don't know. It's it's You can't evaluate it on one game, but he has not done what I think some people thought Tom Herman might have done at Texas. Still good. Still good. But maybe not where you'd want it to be. Arizona State 3, Utah 21, Utah puts it on a very capable Arizona State team. This maybe was one of the more shocking results. We had talked about how you could not blow out this Herm Edwards Arizona State team. And then Utah did it. And so Utah really just with that one black mark on their resume has played really good football outside of that. And interestingly enough, Oregon has their division entirely locked up. Utah does not because of that loss to USC. Things are wide open still in the Pac-12 South. Michigan 21, Penn State 28. This one looked like it was going to be over early as Penn State went up 21 nothing. Michigan stages a comeback, but not enough at the end. I felt good about this. I picked Michigan to win, and they had they were right there, fourth and goal on the you know what three yard line or whatever it is, and they can't punch it in. Thrilling game at the end. Great environment. Great college football. You know, two two storied programs. Uh, again, if you're if you're Jim Harbaugh and you're Michigan, disaster every year for you. This was the year you started in the top ten. You started with expectations above Penn State's. For James Franklin, this is a huge year for him. A lot of people have kind of felt like Allen, without his assistant coaches, without some of the guys he's had there, that he was going to struggle. But this is a this is a James Franklin cementing he'll be at Penn State for a while, I think, kind of season. Okay, and lastly, FSU 20, Wake Forest 22. Wake Forest is having a very nice year. FSU, obviously in this one, can't pull it out. You know, rumors that Taggart will be gone soon, that FSU will actually buy him out. It's 528 on Monday. I don't think he's been fired yet. I just Googled it. Uh, so unless I'm just not seeing it, uh, still the coach as of right now. Yeah, very interesting rumors there. If you didn't get to see the end of the game, it was classic Florida State. They get the ball back down two on their own 20-yard line. They proceed to drop a snap run around, grab it, get sacked, get back lined up again, bad snap, sack, game over. 50 seconds go off the clock. No chance to win. On the other side, Sam Hartman gets his first start at Wake Forest this season. He was the guy featured on QB1 on Netflix if you watch that show and gets a big win over Florida State. It is the right time to fire Willie Taggart right now. You still have talent all over that roster. You could still recruit because you're Florida State. You could basically erase this blip on the radar, but that's a $17 million blip on the radar. And that that's a big chunk for any number of boosters to eat for this kind of mistake. This is where you would hate to be an athletic director, Allen. Hat in hand, I made a horrible decision. This is not a good look, but they should do everything they can to part ways with them. The question is, can they raise that kind of money? I, I think if I was a booster and an athletic director came to me, halfway into year two and said, we have to fire this guy. I would say, why don't you have your successor call me? I don't know that I would want to give an athletic director who, who hired Willie Taggart $17 million to then fire him a year and a half later. I definitely would not. And this is where you see power plays from boosters when they basically say, I'll give you the money and I'm picking the next coach. And so fascinating. I love to be behind the scenes to see what these conversations look like. SEC roundup for the week. Missouri falls to Vanderbilt. One of the most shocking results of the week. Yeah, two of the 10 
weirdest results all season are the two games Missouri has lost, Devandy and then the opening game against Wyoming. They've looked really good. Otherwise, this is crazy. Derek Mason, does he hold on to his job because of this win? We felt like he was dead man walking. I don't know if this does enough, but it certainly is an interesting twist here. Yeah, and, and Vanderbilt lost to UNLV at home last, last week, week, like thirty-four to ten, and then they beat a good Missouri team to what to which leads Derek Mason at the end of the game to give some crazy interview where he's crazy. yelling into the camera about how this is what it's about and protect him. And I don't know, it's it's bizarre. You still got to fire him. Auburn fifty-one, Arkansas ten. The only thing to note from this game is to go back and watch the fake punt that. Arkansas ran comedy gold. Hysterical. We watched it live and it was hysterical. Texas A&M 24. Old Miss had the ball at the end. Chance to tie. Again, they've had several like that this year. 17. Yeah, obviously, Jimbo, if you're you're you have to tread water this year if you have the hopes that you're gonna actually make it through and you know be a championship level team. You can't lose these games to Ole Miss. They didn't, so good for them. Yeah, one of those games where if you lose, it's a huge thing. And if you win and it's close, no one remembers this next year. It's just something you survived in a year like that. All right, let's play a little extend, hold, or fire for our assistant coaches. A nice idea that came across our Patreon message box. I'm going to walk you through them, Alan. Since you are more of the personnel guy, I'm going to lean more heavily on your instruction. I'll be first to say that Tyler Rummery was influential in giving us some intel. Although we know a lot about how these guys are schematically, or at least I do, some of the recruiting stuff I have to rely on secondhand information. So important to note, you can't really know. It's not like me watching film saying, I definitively feel this way. So I'm going to lean heavily on the schematics with what I've heard. And I think, Alan, you'll do something similar. So let's start. Yeah, I just want to say that obviously recruiting is a somewhat team game, right? That... It, sometimes you go, this guy got this guy here or was very influential. And some people are known as good recruiters. We we can only guess at that from what we're hearing. So that will be baked in, but maybe not the primary thing we're talking about, unless someone is known as a bad or very plus recruiter. All right, let's start with defensive coordinator Todd at Grantham. This is interesting. I'm going to actually go, I think, opposite of what you might go and say, go ahead and extend him again. The odds of finding somebody at his level with his match with Mullen, apparently, I think is really difficult. Um, now, again, you've been frustrated over the last couple weeks, but I've been very pleased with our defense overall. I think he get, gets guys up to speed quickly. I think he coaches at a high level. I actually like aggression from a defensive coordinator. So I think the downside of losing him who knows who you're going to get next unless you can go out and hire a guy who's a star. But identifying that guy is somewhat of a risk as well. Yeah, it depends a lot on style. I think right now I have obvious questions for some of the chess pieces and chess strategy, if you will, of the game of football. Grant them as employed. I have a lot of question marks, so I'm going to hold. I'm not going to fire him. He's done a nice job here. But I have too many questions now that are unanswered to feel good. And if I could talk with them, if I'm an athletic director, I can talk with them and walk through what's going on. Maybe I would feel better. But right now I feel not so great, so I'm holding on to him. There are, of course, rumors every year that Grantham's going somewhere else. He's a sought-after kind of guy. Florida is a highly, highly coveted defensive coordinator position. It's one of the best at launching you somewhere. So I think we could pull someone, again, for me and my style, 
There's guys I would like better stylistically. I'm going to hold to Grantham. Like you said, Alan, you don't want to give up something that's been good, but I have questions. All right, let's move to our co-offensive coordinator and offensive line coach, widely regarded as one of the best teachers on the O-line, John Hevesy. I think he fits well with what we're trying to do. Now, Dan Mullen is notoriously loyal. Maybe notoriously is the wrong word. Famously loyal. So he's kept guys like Hevesy and Gonzalez, Knox. A lot of these guys have been around him for a long time. Um, I'll say hold on Hevesy. I, I don't know that he's known as a plus recruiter. I don't know if you have to have that from the offensive line position. I think he's done well. Now, the fact that he carries a co-OC tag with Mullen as your play caller, I don't know. I don't know what that means. I don't have great insight into the game planning, how integral he is to that process. So from a way outside point of view, I'll say hold. Yeah, I'm holding, tempting to extend, but the problem right now, if you're looking at Dan Mullen, is you're not recruiting well enough. You're not recruiting well enough. Not enough top 100 guys. Now you've got Trask, you've got Buzz. If John Hevis, he's the guy that's holding you back recruiting, I'd let him go. But I think he's known as as one of the best offensive line coaches. If you can get him talent, let's say with someone else who can help recruit that position, and again, he's not bad. He's kind of average, right? You would like an elite coach with great talent. And so if you could find a way to team that, as you're talking about, Alan, that's probably optimal. And for that reason, I think you're holding him. I think an automatic extend is for a guy who's both a great recruiter and a great coach. Hevesy's, I think, a great coach of the O-line. He's had subpar talent consistently to work with. So for now, I feel old. All right, this one will be interesting. Co-offensive coordinator and wide receiver coach, Billy Gonzalez. So this might be a place, if you're looking to upgrade, that you would upgrade. Again, Dan Mullen, very loyal. Gonzalez with him a long time. I don't know, again, how integral he is. And I don't know how much credit he gets with our wide receivers. A lot of these guys were somewhat finished products when he arrived. Hammond and Swain, you know, already a little bit older. Van Jefferson is a guy who came in with a lot of, you know, production and credibility. If you look at Grimes, Tony, Copeland, I think they've improved. I don't think he's done a bad job with them, but I also don't know that I would point at him and go, that's the reason that they've been better. So I don't know, maybe a place, uh, I, I'm not saying fire, but I definitely would look at that spot if I were Dan Mullen. After the season, I'm letting Billy Gonzalez go. He's one of our worst recruiters. And quite frankly, I think he's been an overrated wide receiver coach for a long time. He's been stuck in this position now for, I think, more than a decade, really. And that tells me a lot about where someone is. We're Florida. Wide receivers are integral to what we do. I need an A-plus-plus recruiter at that spot. I need somebody to knock it out of the park, not a poor recruiter. So I would part ways with Billy if I were the coach. All right, special teams and running back, Greg Knox. This feels like... uh... I don't know, but it feels good that he's here as the special teams has improved running back. I think you saw some improvement from P Ryan. Again, this comes down to how, how you feel about him as a recruiter. If he's a minus recruiter, then I think you look to upgrade. If you feel like he's doing a good job, you keep him there. That would be the telling factor. Yeah. Terrible recruiter. He's got to go. Again, here's the reason why. Maybe you get to keep a guy like Greg if you're recruiting. If you have an Urban Meyer who's your recruiter, you can keep some maybe better coaches. We have got to get better players. That's the second time I've said that. I'm going to keep saying it. You have to look at positions where you could say, if I got a better recruiter here, 
how much would my special teams and running back play really suffer? Probably not a lot. And special teams is one of the most notorious places to get a great recruiter in because special teams in college is not that difficult to coach. Ron Zook famously was a special teams coach for guy forever. There's a reason why. All right, safeties, Ron English. Well, this seems like the obvious spot to fire. If he's not a good recruiter, which the the warden street is not, I don't think you would say anything about our safety play would lead you to say, we have to keep this guy. Immediate fire. I'm firing him right now. If he has anything to do with playing Steiner and Taylor, I'm firing him. He's also a bad recruiter. We need someone else there. Again, another place in the state of Florida where you should be getting super athletic safeties. You and need that, that guy to recruit And that's, you. you know, they added a 10th coach. Obviously, we tend to use that on defense because Dan Mullen is our play caller. This is a spot. Coaching safeties, there's probably lots of guys on defensive staff who could lend a hand there if that's your nominal position. Or if you wanted to go get an ace recruiter, that'd be an easy spot to fill. Correct. All right. Quarterback coach, Brian Johnson. From what I know of Brian Johnson... I think if we can hold on to him as long as we can, we should. Right? Former offensive coordinator, still a young guy. You know, Dan Mullen is known as a quarterback whisperer, but I think Brian Johnson has to get some credit for development of Kyle Trask. Extend. All these guys are getting better, and it can't just be Dan Mullen. Dan Mullen has a lot to do with it, but Brian Johnson is also raved about by Dan Mullen. The results in the field are great. He's an average recruiter, but... Everyone has gotten better, including Felipe Franks, who's very limited, but he got better. Emery's better. Trask obviously is phenomenal. It's impossible to know how much they played into it, but they played a lot into it, right? You have to coach these guys. So definitely extend. Tight end coach Larry Scott. Love what we've seen from Kyle Pitts, obviously. Uh, If he is a recruiter, people think he is, extend him. Yeah, this is an automatic extend. High-level recruiter. Pitts is a machine right now. And in a world where tight ends don't do a lot in college football, you got a guy who can recruit him. You got a guy who can coach him. Lock him down. Cornerback coach, Torian Gray. I think he's been successful everywhere he's been. A guy who tends to be maybe float around a little bit. If you'd like to extend him and he'd like to stay, I'd do that. Oh, yeah. I'd extend him for sure, too. Again, it's hard to keep these guys because if you're good, you go to the next level. You move up to an offensive coordinator spot or you move up to more responsibility. But if you can keep these guys when they're recruiting well and they're already coaching well, keep them. All right. D-line coach David Turner. I would extend here as well. It seems like we've seen improvement from our D-line last couple of years, getting a lot out of some marginal talent. Have some recruiting success last year. Bogle, Diabate. A few other guys. So if he's recruiting well and they're developing, extend him. Definite extend for sure. I think he's also a guy I think had some success in Mississippi State, Montez Sweat, those guys. Absolutely. He's a shoe and extend. All right. Linebacker coach, last but not least, Christian Robinson. So here's the guy that people love on our staff as a recruiter, younger guy. Uh, Again, I don't know about the coaching of linebackers here. Um, I think we've been okay there, but some of our best recruits have been at linebacker. The The strength of our class last year was at linebacker. So if he had a hand in that, then he's a young guy on the rise. I think you keep him as long as you can. Extend, especially because linebacker in college football is, is coaching is important everywhere. Do not get me wrong. Coaching is important everywhere, but linebacker is largely a talent spot. If you're fast enough and strong enough, you're going to get to the right gaps. 
it gets much more complicated at the next level. It's complicated against teams like LSU, but you could survive an average coach and elite recruiter there and do exceptionally well. And he's certainly, we don't know coaching, jury's still out, but recruiting top notch, definitely a position of need, especially as these college football teams move more towards passing Allen, getting the elite linebackers of which there are few that can do both things well are essential to building a good defense. Right. I think what you hear us is upgrade recruiting. Now we'll see like how this goes. Now, obviously if you have all the talent in the world and those guys suck and they never get any better, you're not going to go anywhere. This staff has been a development heavy staff. I think we just need to lean a little bit more in that direction. Correct. All right, let's walk through the week nine national games. We're going to record these scores and post them on Patreon. So if you hear keystrokes in the background, that's why. Don't double check your your headsets or your car radios. It will be correct. Okay, Alan, USC favored by 12 and a half at Colorado. This is interesting. USC, obviously very up and down. Colorado, I expected them to be a little bit better than they are at this point in the season. I'll go ahead and take USC here. I feel like in this situation, Colorado comes off a surprising dumpster fire game. USC, again, trending upwards. Slova seems to be trending upwards. It's a road game, and the Pac-12 is weird. I like I like USC in this matchup at Colorado. I feel like they're in the heat of the battle. They're playing well. They're playing with some confidence. Colorado kind of already with nothing to play for. They've accomplished some stuff. Easy to see complaints. I like Colorado. I like USC on the road. All right, Cal quarterbackless Cal that has just been a train wreck of regression. Can't score points since it was in their starter. On the road against Utah. Utah getting 19 or favoring 19 points. Yeah, I mean, I would expect this game to be close normally in a vacuum, but like you said, Cal really struggling in offense. I'll go Utah here. I like Utah as well. Cal can't score at all. They're on the road. Utah playing another really important game to keep pace with USC. I like Utah even if they're laying 19. Number five, Oklahoma playing 22 points at Kansas State. Man, this feels high right here. Oklahoma have been trucking people on the road at Kansas State. A little bit of a trap game, potentially. I'm still going to take Oklahoma. Yeah, Kansas State seems like a difficult match here. I'm going to go Kansas State with the points here. I feel like Oklahoma should get this done, but at the same point in time, this is a, this is a tricky game for them. Maryland, with Mike Loxley, just heading in all kinds of bad directions. Could have been predicted before he got there. He started white hot like a bottle rocket, and that thing has crashed back down to earth. At upstart, Minnesota, number 17th ranked Minnesota. Minnesota favored by 16. So again, I think this is a look-ahead game. If Maryland was playing decently at all, I would take them here. I think Minnesota tempted to look at the back half of their schedule. But gosh, picking all these high favorites is making me nervous, but I'll stick with Minnesota. I like them. I feel like when I see high teen spreads, I feel comfortable with them. And I haven't watched Minnesota play a lot, but it's a 16-point spread. I'm going to take Minnesota. Syracuse at Florida State. Florida State favored by nine and a half. I'm going to go the other way this time. I'm going to take Syracuse. Now that I believe in Syracuse, nine and a half is too much for FSU with any team. Yeah, Syracuse has been a very tricky team. We've said all year long that if you're taking Florida State in the points, you're kind of crazy, and I'm going to abide by that. I am not taking Florida State favored by nine and a half. Missouri favored by 11 at Kentucky. I mean, what Missouri team shows up, I would not not bet this even 10 cents. Uh, I think Kentucky can keep it close. I'll, I'll go Kentucky here. I'm going to take Missouri to cover this. This kind of fits their season. They laid an egg there, but I think they'll come back against a Kentucky team that has been good on defense but just does not have an offense. Although, again, I dislike 
strongly dislike betting games with this many unknown variables. You look for consistency. Washington State, difficult year at number 11, Oregon. Oregon favored by 14. Washington State played well last week. Oregon, I think, is just trending up. I think they're going to have more and more confidence. Um, but I think Washington keep, State keeps a little close. I'm going to go to the Cougars. Yeah, this feels like a classic Mike Leach-Washington State game to me. I'm taking Washington State. Notre Dame, number eight Notre Dame at number 19 Michigan. Michigan favored Allen by one and a half. I guess if you think that Notre Dame can't go into Michigan and win, you would, you're just pitch, picking Michigan to win here. Uh, I don't think Michigan's going to win, so I'm going to have to go to Notre Dame. I don't know where Michigan's head is at right now. That's my question. I picked them to win last week. They played well. They played better. They got it going in the second half. They're certainly building momentum. Notre Dame played well against the Georgia team that we now know maybe isn't so great, but I still think that means something. I'm going to take Notre Dame. Penn State, minus six, only minus six, Allen, against Michigan State. I think this is reflective of how difficult it's been for Penn State at Michigan State the last few times. This Michigan State offense is just so bad. I think Penn State will win, so I'm comfortable taking them at six. Yeah, they tend to play closer road games than they do at home, but I'm I'm feeling good about that too. This is this just seems can Michigan State score ten points on Penn State? No. Can Penn State score more than sixteen? I think so. Number thirteen, Wisconsin. Their balloon deflated, traveling to Ohio State. Ohio State favored by fourteen. This is tough. Um this line is high enough that I'm tempted to pick Wisconsin. I think it will be close, but I think this might be one of those spreads that kind of like with us in LSU, Ohio State tacks on a score at the end and pushes up to 14. So I'm going to take Ohio State. Yeah, this is a proving game. I don't like this game because, again, I haven't seen Ohio State play against a good team. Wisconsin just came up lost. This is just not a game I'd bet. Yes. Uh, but based up, based upon that one, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to take Wisconsin because I just feel like when you have two teams that should be good playing each other and one team has not played anybody really good yet, it could be close. I also can see plenty of ways Ohio State blows out Wisconsin. Number nine, Auburn. Really looking forward to this one, by the way. On the road against LSU. I'm going to throw a number at you that might surprise you. We were 14-point underdogs. Auburn is only 12.5-point underdogs. I wonder if this is just a function of how many difficult games LSU has had to play in a row. But Vegas maybe knows something here again. LSU, man, I'm so interested to see how Auburn plays them and if LSU is able to stop Auburn running the ball. Um, I do think LSU scores again late, just like they did against us. I'll use that same formulation here. I'll take LSU at 12.5. I'm all over LSU in this one. I love the way LSU is going to match up with them on film, on defense. I don't think Bo Nix and Auburn can attack LSU the way that you need to attack them to score. And knowing how Kevin Steele likes to play defense, safe sitting back, that is the wrong recipe. They have a lot of veterans back there, but you can't play zone against Joe Burrow. So they do have the front seven, but then again, are they going to play zone? I don't know. There's too many question marks for me to see Auburn closing within this, but I'm fascinated to watch how Auburn chooses to play LSU and how this game plays out. I'm going to take LSU, though, covering that 12.5 point spread. Okay, let's do a brief little section here with our playoff picks. This is a bye week. Time to look ahead, do one little final shot at this. So let's go maybe seed by seed here, James. Um, why don't you do your number one seed, and then I'll do my number one seed. 
Okay, I'm gonna I'm gonna pick my number one seed being the team I think will be the favorite to win it, not the one that is the number one seed. Because the team I'm picking right now is Clemson, and they're much maligned, and they certainly will not at this pace be the number one seed. But for me, team I think that has the best chance to win it all, despite that I admit that they're not playing well, is Clemson. I'm gonna go Clemson as my number one team to win. Okay, I'm gonna go, I guess, a different way. We'll probably end up with Ultimately, this is a prediction, right? So not just what you think will happen, but maybe you're not doing what the committee will do. You're just putting your top four teams in here. I'll maybe stick a little closer to the committee, and I'll say Ohio State at number one here. Okay. And I think my second most likely team to win it all with Tua Healthy is still Alabama. I think they have just a bit more than LSU does. So I'm going to go Alabama as the second team. So I think, therefore, it could be a Clemson-Alabama rematch yet again. All right, I'm going to go number two, LSU. I think LSU wins that game. I don't. I just have to pick LSU right now because I don't know if Tua is going to be healthy. If Tua is not in this game, obviously you have to take LSU. Therefore, I'm going to hedge a little bit and say the Tigers. Okay, I like it. I like it. I would thoroughly enjoy LSU being there, especially because that would give us a chance to beat them in the SEC title game. All right, my third team I'm going to say is Ohio State. We're going to find out what they're made of. Again, I'm, I'm hedging on them because I haven't seen them play a good team yet. I'm stoked about what I see. They look fantastic on film. Everything looks really good. What does it look like against a real team? We're going to find out. So right now for me, Ohio State, third most likely team to win the title. Okay, and I'll, I'll go number three, Clemson here. That They're going to defeat it. They're going to be in the playoff, barring some catastrophe. You know, they almost had that moment against North Carolina. I don't think they're going to get scared like that again. So Clemson. I'm going to go Oklahoma with my fourth team. I think if you were giving me my true four teams, not I think I know, I'd probably bump out one of these back-end teams by the end of the season. Either Ohio State or Oklahoma, I think I'd move out, and I'd probably double up the SEC, assuming Tua stays healthy, assuming that it's in a one-loss LSU or Alabama team. Due to the factors that exist, if Ohio State and Oklahoma take care of business, they're going to be in, which I don't know would be right, based upon what I think may happen. Like right now, you know, would you favor LSU over Oklahoma? I think so. I think everybody would. So they seem like the team that's good, maybe not quite as good, but they're going to sneak in there if they go undefeated. So for me, fourth is Oklahoma. I'll take Oklahoma as well. And this would be obviously a dream for the committee. You got four undefeated conference champions. Just slot them in there. doesn't really matter the order. No controversy. Obviously the Pac-12 whether it's Oregon or or USC or anyone else, there's obviously already a loss on their slate. So this is really milk toast, but I, I don't think there's a hundred percent guarantee you're gonna get Oklahoma and Ohio State through unscathed. Clemson feels like the obvious one. And then it's gonna come down to Bama LSU potentially. Now, what is the committee gonna do? Let's say Oklahoma loses a game. Alabama loses to LSU without Tua. So then you have a one-loss Alabama sitting there. Do you take them ahead of a one-loss Oklahoma who is a conference champion? That's going to be fascinating. Yeah, the good thing about this is it does tend to go a little differently than you think. Teams lose when they shouldn't lose. I think, again, this is a my case I'll make every year. Eight teams to me is perfect. If you look at it right now, as we just said, it does not leave out the fifth team, which I think this year is going to be a really good team. 
you can make an argument to go to six, which I'd also be okay with. But I just think the way conferences are, you can't equate playing in the SEC. As Joe Moorhead now knows, the SEC is not the Big Ten. And you should take something from that. That's a tough conference. Joe Moorhead is the first to talk about this is different down here. To me, it's just not necessarily equal without equalizing the conferences. And I also think if Oregon went through the rest of the season the way they were, maybe you find yourself putting a Pac-12 championship in there. If they get killed, whatever, who cares? Eight teams allows for you to get a uh, you know a power five team, a group of five team that maybe doesn't make it in there. And if they lose, whatever, fine. But it also allows the most important thing, Alan, which is it allows a very potentially well-deserving number five to get in and prove it against somebody else. We're going to find out what happens. Yeah. It should be really fun to watch the end of this. I know some people love the four-team format, but I feel like every year you're potentially leaving out somebody who you're just you're kind of really like looking at nuanced resume pieces. It's not that easy to separate them. Right. I think this year especially you would get a fairly pedestrian six through eight slate potentially, or you get three SEC teams in there, which other people would not like anyway. So uh, we'll see what the – community does i think it's inevitable it's going to expand eight I, again i'm contrarian here i like the four other items anything else james you want to talk about as always thanks for listening we somehow made another mega sode we said before how long do you think this will be alan and alan said i think it'll be like an hour and 45 minutes which is probably being even progressive with the time I think it can be less i thought it might be like an hour and 15 today but i don't know what the deal is but we just keep carrying on with these things it's not on purpose uh, as always, thanks for the support so far. It's only been positive. We've had like, I think one person say, hey, we like it to be a little shorter. If you want it to be shorter, tell us. We'll make it shorter. We promise we'll, <laughs> we'll do it. We'll try. Thanks as always for the feedback. It means a lot to us. Really, it's helpful. Keep us honest. Correct our stats. Get stuff right for us. Tell us what you want to see or hear. Uh, we value it. Thanks again, everybody. Next week, a little bit of a fun interview. We'll see you guys next week. We get to hear from the Gator Great. Later on. See you guys.